We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is unfortunately not here. He had to step away this week, but uh, he'll be back next week. Um, this week, we're first off, Out Now is a film co- podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we have these special bonus episodes with sort of a fun commentary track, something completely different. And this is uh, something a little different, a little familiar for this time of year, however. It is our uh, Sundance recap episode every year. Since we have many guests on the show, uh, many of them attend the Sundance Film Festival, and this year is no different, and that's what we're going to focus on this week. We're going to talk about uh, the films that uh, premiered or screened at Sundance and go over some of the uh, bests and worsts and what have you. Um, I was able to see a, a, a chunk of Sundance films, but of course, we have a guest with us who's seen many, and joining us this week to talk about this such thing we have from FirstShowing.net. If he's skiing, he's either in Utah or fleeing the country. It's Alex Billington. Hello. Yes, it's true. I'm playing. <laughs> What's up? Hi, Alex. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to have you back. I, Thank you. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think it's it's been less than last year since we did this exact same episode that you've been here, but I'm not actually sure. Um, it sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's certainly possible. Uh, but that said, it is glad. I'm glad to have you back here. It's always fun to have you on, to, on the course, show with us. And uh, I'm excited to talk about uh, Sundance and hear what you have to say about a, a lot of a giant number. How many films did you see at Sundance? You know, offhand. <laughs> Wait, you're jumping ahead. Um, uh, technically speaking, as of this moment, 59. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's that's plenty. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. In a we'll bit. get there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but let's get to some show notes real quick. First up, uh, our our top 10 episode went up last week, which was super fun to record. It's always fun to record that show. We got. Uh, a lot of good feedback from we also got a lot of uh, a lot of guest participation which was super great but that said alex we did not get yours in the episode so i was wondering if, if you wouldn't mind would you like to read your top 10 films of 2021 yes i would love to uh and thank you for not inviting me but i'll happily do it no no i'm kidding um yeah yeah i uh it's it's always interesting to put together my top 10 because it's hard to think about like a whole year's worth and put it into a list because it's like one of them that's on here i hadn't i'd seen it last year's sundance <laughs> and um you know that kind of you know anyway uh my top 10 from 2021 was number one limbo um number two dune number three spencer number four the summit of the gods uh number five one second this young yamu film that no one else saw <laughs> i saw it i like um, that film quite a bit yes yes okay good, good uh number six language lessons um number seven achilles escape uh, number eight, Judas and the Black Messiah, which was last year's Sundance film and in last year's Oscar film, yet technically was a 2021 film. Um, uh, number nine is The Harder They Fall, and number ten is Come On, Come On. Um, and then I added a bonus just because I loved it. This 14 Peaks documentary on Netflix, oh. I really lost my mind for it. So that's my ten and eleven. <laughs> well, great. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing. I, I like. Every film that I've seen, I like on there. I haven't seen um, uh, the 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 mountain one, Summit. Um, Summit of the Gods. Summit of the Gods. Yet it's been on my queue yeah. for a bit, but that, but I've seen every every other one of those, and I, I I'm a big fan. Uh, some of those yeah. are on my list. Uh, but thanks, thanks for throwing in your top ten there. Um, of course. So, so yeah, now we've wrapped up. 2021 films for sure um until we get to the oscars uh yeah, it's like for three more months of oscar <laughs> exactly uh but what else as far as show notes go uh commentary track 
Um, it is going to, by the time this releases, it'll be February. That means we'll have a new commentary track coming, and we have some ideas what we want to do there, so stay tuned for that. Um, also, iTunes reviews and ratings, of course. If you want to log into iTunes, search for our show, Out Now with Aaron and Abe. You can find us. You can uh, give us a rating interview, which would be wonderful, and thank you in advance. Um, all right. Let's uh let's move on. Now let's get let's get to it. Let's talk about the Sun the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. Uh this yes. year as I believe I'm right uh at towards the last minute given the rise of my least favorite Transformer Omnicron, uh they decided to <laughs> uh pivot once more to virtual, although it was both an in-house and virtual experience this year at Sundance. Am I right on that, Alex? Yeah, uh yes, that was the plan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm not sure how attended the actual festival was, but I am aware that the, you know, this, the, this, the, the virtual experience was more than readily available for everybody, um, which is, you know, nice in its own ways. But I guess let's talk about that. Alex, what, what was, what did you feel like the experience was for this year's Sundance Film Festival? I'm, I mean, going into it, it felt a bit muted right from the start because there was kind of hype that it would return to the in-person. And I know a lot of my friends had made bookings and everything was set to go. And then with like, I think it was like 15 days before they, they canceled this in-person event, which was, of course, the right thing to do. And of course, they had already built the platform and had prepared to go into the virtual. And I felt like, okay... There's, it's like the the to use the phrase the wind had already been taken out of the room had felt like that before the festival even began but then there was this kind of idea of like okay just enjoy the films let's you know get into this the lineup um the other thing going into it i thought was very interesting this year is that i was also expecting their typical lineup of about 120 films mm-hmm. um and they ended up with about 80 of them and i kept thinking like why are they missing 40 or 30 films from their usual lineup i think last year they had 70 but that was just because it was meant to be all online and this year with the return in person i thought oh they'd have their typical 120 and i wonder if it was because this is the rumor i wonder if it was that uh, a lot of these films at least 30 of them didn't want to premiere if it was going to be online mm-hmm. and they wanted a solely in-person theatrical premiere um i mean i've even heard that about one or two of them and uh subsequently it's like it's not to say that the, the remaining 80 films they programmed were not good. It's just like, hey, you know, I felt like there were a few missing. And so going into it, there was this kind of, to me, muted idea of like, what are we going to see this year? I know it's the second year in a row festivals had to sort of cancel and reshift and do things and, and sort of say, hey, we're still going to go on with our lineup and present our films even without the typical in-person experience. And what can they do? Um, and I still think in the end it's it's. Of all the festivals I've done virtually, Sundance is still one of the best. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a great screening platform. Their Apple TV app works great. Everything just kind of flows, and the quality is great. And um, while the schedule is the only thing I have a, an issue with, <laughs> um, the overall feel of it is pretty good. Like you, I feel like there's a lot more conversation at Sundance than any other festival for some reason. I don't know if it's just the, the like kind of people the festival attracts and the kind of press that are covering it, but there's more like a film premieres and I'm seeing tons of tweets about it. I'm reading reviews. I'm like already in the middle of the discussion. Whereas at another festival I come out and it's like, no one has said anything yet. And it takes three days and you know, I don't know who's saying what. Um, and I like that vibe about Sundance because that's what to me is the exciting thing about it. It's like, I'm here to talk with you because I want to talk about these films. I don't want to just see them and then write my review and hide under my covers. Like I want to have a conversation about them. What do you, what do you attribute that to? Like the kind of the notion of 
feeling better to have that discussion spread like you know right away about certain movies as opposed to other festivals what, what, is, is there something there is it a social is it like a social media thing or just like a, a positive attitude yeah. about what's going on in general or yeah all of the above i've always felt that sundance is also like look i would personally say that i love this festival almost more than any other festival because the films they play are my kind of films like meaning and i say this in a kind of obviously um biased way but like american indie films you know <laughs> and as an american kid who grew up watching american indie films i'm like this is my kind of stuff and i think these kind of films also have this like uh draw to them that causes the the, the people to want to talk about them more mm-hmm. and like there's not only political films but there's also just films that are like um i think american american press too are way more interested in just having something to say about it like the the European press are kind of snobby, like we're gonna sit down and write our formal review and blah blah blah. But the American press are like, let's have a conversation. And I think that I think that Sundance like it just has the mix of all of this. It has the social media vibe where like there's enough of people on there, you know, participating. But it also just has this like historic legacy of what Sundance is and the kind of films they play that I think it makes it this exciting time in January, um, where we can all just kind of get into it. And I, I think that's the other thing I love about festivals is that. For most of the year, aside from a weekend release, we're kind of scattered on what we're talking about. But for, you know, 10 days of a time, we're all talking about these films. And then all of us, meaning like every critic I know out there and every other film journalist is here watching these films at this festival, having this conversation about these things. And that means it's it's more we're, we're finally like in sync about what we're talking about. And that that gives us more to get excited about, in a sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, it, no, I, I, I do think it makes sense. It, do, it does make me just wonder. I guess because Sundance just has, a, like you mentioned, there's a certain legacy behind it. And it just seems like a fairly popular and more well-known film festival where something like, yeah. I don't know, Telluride, which is certainly fun to say, um, I, despite the kind of vibe I get where it seems like a very relaxed and hangouty type of thing that has a lot of you know notable films that premiere there since they all tend to move into the award season since given its location in the year. I guess it doesn't get as much like traffic for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe it's a placement in the year. Mm-hmm. It's coming out like, in like the summer, and there's a lot of other things going on also. I don't know. But something like Sundance, which, yeah, has its reputation, and maybe because it's January, and so you're dealing with a certain set of things, and it's like a fresh start to a year, maybe that like attributes to, yeah. to it as well. So it's like, okay, here's All the, the this, new yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, obviously it's a variety of reasons. So I, just, I just get curious. I get curious what it is that kind of gives it a certain kind of glow uh, compared to other film festivals. Uh, yeah, so, I also uh-huh. I would say the same thing just just what you just said, which is that this this like placement in January makes it this kind of beginning of the year thing. It's like okay, we're finished with our 2021. What's 2022 going to offer us in terms of cinema? Well, the first festival out of the gate is Sundance. Like here's this first batch of cinema for the year, and um, of course these films have been you know in the works for a long time, but now we kind of get to start our year with this excitement of what we're gonna kind of go through the year with and i mean it's hard because it's january and then some of these films need to last all year like coda from last year i think is just now still in the oscar conversation which is great but i also worry a lot of these will get lost in the mix like they'll 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 be talked about now they'll come out in march and then they'll just be forgotten by may and it's like it's still a 2022 film don't forget (laughs) i get that for sure that does come down to 
And sometimes it's unfair because it's like, yeah, it's one thing to have staying power, but it's another thing to be like, yeah, you came out all the way back here. How do you keep that momentum going? And it's a rare case yeah. when it does happen. Obviously, it's notable when it does happen. Something like you just mentioned Coda or Moonlight's another obvious example. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it does happen that way. And other times, even if the film is legit great, it just can't, you know, with so much noise out there, you can't, like, have this one thing, like, also stick around. Yeah, so. yeah. Now, you did mention that you felt this year was muted uh, by comparison. Uh, do you mean that in terms of not necessarily just conversation, but as far as, like, standout films? Do you not think there was, like, a like like a, a, like a major, like, this is the one type of movie? or No, there's always this is the one. I mean, this is my question for you, Aaron. It's like, uh-huh. did, did you feel, what do you, because I hate every year at a festival, this happens for the 16 years I've been doing this. There will always be someone who's like, this festival is a terrible year. <laughs> Every single year this happens. And I'm like, it's always going to be this judge of, you know, was it better than last year's or was it better than this iconic 2009 or whatever it was. And I always feel like there's always a, a, like a good handful of great films. Whether or not there's more than a handful, I think, is the question that a lot of critics are judging. Like, I you know, I read some critics who are like, oh, I saw only one great film this whole festival. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't want to say you're not watching enough, but, you know, there's always more to see. And, and I don't think the quality of the films is necessarily lower this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, of course, I had a handful of loves and then I had a handful of hates. And I whenever I think about it, I'm like, this is pretty much the same every Sunday. <laughs> I could go look at my three years ago Sundance and I'd be like, yeah, there's also a handful of stuff I hated and there's a handful of stuff I loved. It's mm-hmm. pretty typical of the festival. Um I think one of the things I also particularly love about Sundance is that the quality of the films they program is on a certain level. And of course, that's because of their legacy, but also just because they put a lot of effort into curating the best kind of films. Um, And that means, you know, you get a thousand submissions, you really need to choose the best films that end up in there. And that a lot of festivals usually get second picking. Sundance kind of gets like the literal first picks and ends up with a lot of really great stuff that... um, I think there's what I feel a lot about Sundance films is that even the films I don't like, I still think are really great, well-made, high-quality films, even if I don't like them. Like there's still something that makes about sense given what you just said as far as the kind of yeah. you know the programming aspect of it. Like you're, if you're going to Sundance, clearly you did something right. I mean, the, yeah, like yeah. if if you don't re, if you know if a viewer doesn't respond to it, uh, like that's fair and everybody has an opinion. But like the fact that it made it into the Sundance Film Festival, there's a certain level of prestige that goes with that. That's yeah. not, I don't think that's necessarily snobby. That's just more of a bunch of people had to approve this thing to get to one of the most, you know, one of the, one of the most well-known film festivals in the world. Clearly something went, you know, the mix was right for this thing. Like, <laughs> exactly. What I, did, I mean, what did you think? What is your feeling on this? Year? So, you know, obviously my experience is different than yours as far as I haven't gone to, I haven't, I've never been to, to the Sundance Film Festival in person. And, but you did last year, right? No, I, I mean, well, it's been this virtual last year. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. it's, I mean, you did the virtual last year. So. I mean, I was able to see movies last year. I didn't like apply to the Sundance film festival. Um, it's it's oh, okay, more okay. of just like circumstances allowed me to view films both last year and this year. And cool. that said, I'm, I'm more than happy to like, if, if I could like grab a couple tickets, so Anna and I could get in the plane and, you know, spend a week in Utah. Cool. Like I'd be down for that. And that would, that, you know, be certainly much preferable. But as far as, this home experience uh, this year in particular, um, I, I had a chance to see, you know, a handful of movies, not 
nearly as enough as much as you, but like I was able to, you know, uh, get get the access that I uh, wasn't even necessarily after. It's just more of, hey, I have the opportunity to do this. I can go for it. So I, I saw yeah, exactly. a, good, a good set of films, um, ones that eventually got some, you know, the higher regard or whatnot. But regardless, it was more of it was a matter of here's what's available that I can just watch. And also here are things that I'm generally interested in just because of who's starring in them or who's directing them or what have you. And I mean, as far as like convenience and the you know effectiveness of the apps and whatnot, it's like, oh yeah, this all worked out really well. Like despite having yeah. turned, was it going to be, was it always going to be just, was it going to be just in person before they switched or was it always going to be a co thing? This year it was both. It was both, but was the like before they, before they canceled certain things, was it was it going to be just an in-person thing before they switched it? No, 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 no. It was always meant. It to was be always going to be both. I think, yeah, I think, and and spurred off of the the conversations that happened last year that I was involved in, mm-hmm. I think Sunny has decided that that from now on they're going to do a hybrid festival indefinitely. That's well, my belief. Well, that makes plenty of sense given how easy the app was. <laughs> it's like it's, it's like if, yeah, they, yeah. if they had to scrap this together in 15 days i was about to give somebody you know a raise but like now it's like okay yeah that makes more sense um because yeah. it's and i think i like I think it's it, of... i'm just gonna say it's it's easier to access like the movies here versus like like universal's movies where i have to like log in like 14 <laughs> yeah, different yeah, ways yeah. just so i can watch exactly. like a screener of something with my name tattooed all over it so yeah, exactly i think i think they just like uh, what's the term um found the fit in terms of just they can do i mean they've been doing these like satellite screenings which are in-person things in other parts of the country anyway uh-huh. so they're like hey we can show these films to the whole nation you can log in from anywhere watch them you can watch them at some cinemas you know outside of utah and i think they kind of just like realized that this is a good idea and i'm you know of course i don't know what will happen next year but i'm guessing that they will have an online system next year too because this is the interesting thing to to what you were asking is that they were very clearly set up to do both Uh because a lot of the badges that people had received said you can use your ticket to watch it online like if you don't go in person Mm -hmm. so it was almost like a backup system it was like uh you know like let's say you're in utah and there's a huge snowstorm and you can't get to the cinema and you still have a ticket to see this, well, you can just log online and still watch this film at home, which I think is actually kind of a cool idea for a festival. Like, you don't have to go to the screening, but you also have the ability to see it if you have a ticket. But at the same time, um, I respect their desire to get back to the in-person, and I was also very curious to see, it didn't happen this year, but I was curious to see how an in-person and virtual combination festival would go, because I don't think anyone has ever done that fully yet. You know, everyone's either been fully virtual or fully online. No one has either been a mix of both successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to see how that goes. I'd love to see... I was very curious to see this year, until they canceled it, if the reactions from people in person would have been different, you know, good or bad, than the people watching at home. I always feel like there's something to that, and I was very curious to see, like, what was happening with the in-person people. Yeah, it's like a, it's certainly a test study worth, like, figuring out but like i i wouldn't deny that there you know there has to be just varying degrees as far as it kind of certainly when it comes to like films that are not necessarily designed would certainly play to an audience to like yeah, yeah, a exactly. certain 
you know, there's a certain air in the room when everybody's kind of enjoying a movie that's, you know, a feel good movie or like a, you know, something that, you know, something with weighty emotions involved attached to it where mm-hmm. by having, you know, a communal experience, it's going to, yeah, it's going to make, it will probably reflect on the, on the voting uh, ballots or what have you, right? Like yeah. if that can, yeah. versus being at home and reserving something where there's so many variables as far as how you're experiencing that film, whether, you know, it's, you're tired, it's night, it's day, you're by yourself, <laughs> you yeah. on your phone, like any number of things, you know, <laughs> will, yeah, will, exactly. can, can affect what, you know, what your reaction is to something. Uh, I will say there were a number of horror films and thrillers this year, and I certainly tried to watch those. In, I was watching all of these movies at night anyway, but I certainly tried to like enclose my space so I could like have the proper <laughs> effect watching, yeah. Uh, you know, some of these films that rely on a certain level of tension to be maintained. Um, yeah, definitely. With all that said, I think we should get to some of these, you know, some of these films here uh, that we watched. Um, yeah. I hit, I hit my number because I had the freedom to do so. <laughs> I've yeah. never watched this many this many films before in my life. Um, I say that it's insane because it is insane. <laughs> I'm at 59. I'm hoping to get to 60 tonight if you tell me one more to watch. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I normally see about 35 at the festival every year. Um, and I had been given this pass, which lets me just watch like literally anything at any time. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to take advantage of this and just watch anything at any, like I was just, you know, someone would say something like, oh, this film was great. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to watch this. <laughs> and we just like go through the whole lineup. Um, and I, I, I say, this is my preface to get into the films is that it has always been my dream to go to Sundance and be like, I could just see every film. <laughs> And the virtual opportunity this year, like, basically handed that to me on a silver platter. And I was like, okay, you give this to me, I will eat 60 films in one meal and see what happens. Um, And I just, I I think I'm also this kind of, like, hardcore cinema nerd where I'm just like, I just want to see it. Mm -hmm. I just want to know... Like, you know, if someone says, oh, this film Master is really incredible, I'm like, I just want to know what they're talking about. And I get a sense of what it is. Even if I don't like it, I'm like, I just want to have an idea of what this film is. Kind of as a, also in its place within the bigger picture of cinema. Like, I want to know what they're doing and how this film, you know, relates to cinema and the genre it's in and what it's doing and what it's commenting on just to get a better sense from my own perspective. Uh, and that's what I was excited about going through all of these. So I'm really anxious to find out what you liked. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's do that. And how about we do this? How about we talk about like a number of films that we liked, but not necessarily the our like our favorite ones. As of it. Let's save the favorite okay. ones like a few a few in. Let's get a few in first, and then we can get to like some <laughs> of, like the you know one or two of, like the true highlights here. Yeah. yeah. So, so why don't you kick this one off? What's what's one of the ones that you like really liked? Um, I want to start off with Emergency. Did you see this one? I did see Emergency. Yes. Okay. Good. Um. I will begin by saying I really disliked this director's film last year. I think it was this R.J. Um, Romeo Juliet update crap. I hated it. Oh, I never saw. I remember, remember you. Ta- I remember. You, I remember you talking about uh, it. I didn't see the film, but I remember you speaking about it. Yeah. I was ex- I was extremely nervous going into this because I'm like, oh no, it's this director. It's like director I, Carrie I, Williams is the director. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so, no, but I mean, the good thing is that um, going into this, I was nervous, but he really. I think he. I think this director finally sort of. It's this. Uh, did you see um, TikTok boom last year? Tick tick boom. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> TikTok, <laughs> TikTok boom is another film with the festival. Tick tick boom. Yes. 
in the end of this film, his big lesson gives a spoiler, but whatever. His big lesson from his agent is write what you know, mm-hmm. right? And he does that, and he makes rent, and he goes on to have success. I felt like emergency. He finally got into writing, <laughs> and what that's he knows, and that's cause... the end of the story of Tick Tick Boom. He has success. The ends. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is. I mean, it is one of the ending scenes. No, but um. I thought I thought it was a key scene for him because he he was like trying to adapt this ridiculous story into a musical. Yeah. And it was all over the place. And then she's like, you know, he ends up making rent, which is just him about his friends living in New York trying to survive and make money. And the same sort of thing happens with Emergency. I think RJ was this like experimental crap. And then Emergency, I think he finally was like writing a film about the black experience and um he he said this in the intro the director and i thought it was really fascinating he said two friends who have a completely different worldview and i was like okay what does that mean and you go into emergency and it's like two black friends and each one has a different take on what to do and i found their dynamic and the way they play off of each other in this situation really fascinating and that um i don't want to give it away but i but i love the arc that the one friend goes through where he just like breaks down at the end and has this moment where he's like, Oh shit. Like I understand what you've been telling me this whole time. And it just broke him down in this really emotional way. You're referring and to the character Kunle. Yes. Yeah. Played by Donald Ellis Watkins. Yes. Um, both of them are great. Yeah, uh, RJ Siler is the other, the other character. He was, in, RJ, he was in the man, me, I... me Earl and the dying girl among other things. And he's very good. Yeah. I, like, I like when he pops up in things. Yeah, exactly. And the harder they help, the harder they fall too. The harder he's... they fall, yeah. He's the kid. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, he's fantastic in this. And I just thought it reminded me a lot of Blind Spotting from two or three years ago at Sundance. Yeah. To clarify, where... to clarify for emergency, real quick, this plot involves it's it's two friends. They're about to go on a night of partying, and then they discover there's a passed out white girl in their house at college, and yeah. their decision is. We can't call the cops because it looks strange that two black guys and their their Latino roommate have, you know, a random passed out white girl in their house. That's going to look odd. We need to find a different solution. And so it becomes one long night of them trying to figure out how to deal with the situation. Yeah. One of my friends told me he couldn't stand the film because he's like, oh, there's this woman with alcohol poisoning and they're not doing anything about it. And I'm like, that's literally the plot of the movie. <laughs> Is it? I thought it was a very realistic thing to say. Yes, she's in an emergency. I mean, that's literally the name of the film. And these kids are actually dealing with – and this is what I say when he's he's writing something that he knows. Is they're dealing with the actual weight of, like, what do you do in this situation in a very realistic sense of they're right. If they call the cops, something bad could happen. And ultimately, that's what the movie gets to, not to give it away, but – there is that kind of revelation with what happens when they do finally confront the police. Um, and I thought it was such a fresh story to say, we're going to take this concept and run with it for, I think it's like a hundred minutes and take them on this journey. And it was made during the pandemic, which there are a few scenes where this is very apparent, like when they get lost in the woods uh-huh. and I was like, why are they in the woods? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it works. And uh, overall, I thought it was a really strong film. And I, I'm glad that this director kind of course corrected himself after this Romeo and Juliet crap to make something really engaging and, and um, really moving to me in a way. Yeah, I agree with you. I do think the film's very strong. It's one of my, it's in my, it's in my top five uh, for these Sundance oh, movies. And uh, I do think it, it does come down to that chemistry between the two friends. I think that. Yeah. is really strong it's also a very funny movie like we shouldn't underplay the fact that it's all you know it is also a it's a comedy and drama like it, it very much tries to play into a sense of humor 
just dealing with certain real world stakes. And a lot of the humor comes from not necessarily making the wrong decision, but certainly making tense decisions that only exacerbate things throughout the film. And yeah. there's, you know, there's some side plots here that kind of help round things out. But like overall, yeah, I do think it's, it comes down to like exactly having those opposing worldviews on how to look at what's going to take place and seeing where it goes. And by, by escalating things in its climax in certain ways, I do think it, it kind of nails the landing it's going for. And then I yeah, even, exactly. I, and I even appreciate there's kind of an epilogue towards the end. I appreciated that as well, uh, as far as kind of where things are uh, after the fact. So yeah, no, I, I, I thought it was a strong yeah, yeah. entry. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll bring up the next film here. Uh, speaking of like tense films dealing with uh, black experience to an extent, uh, eight nine two. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, this is the. Um, it's a. I guess it's a, it's a thriller with John Boyega. It's based on a real story. It's basically a rip from the headlines type of real story, uh, where John Boyega plays Brian Brown Easley. He's a marine and a war veteran who's facing difficulty because the veteran affairs is not properly compensating him um as as he needs uh, so it's making him basically homeless and he has to deal with having a child and an ex-wife and so his solution is to is to not rob a bank but go to a bank and threaten to blow it up mm. and the majority of the film focuses on him as well as the two bank managers played by Nicole Bahari and Selena's Levia uh they're just stuck inside this Wells Fargo and on the outside you have a lot of media intruding or intruding uh, involvement as well um, I see he's on the phone talking with some of them. One's played by Connie Britton. You also have Michael Kenneth Williams in his last role um, as a um, as a negotiator. Um, I think this film, I found it rather affecting. I can't say mm -hmm. it's great, but I do think it's pretty yeah. good because I think Boyega, yeah. I think Boyega really sells his role, and I think the other the the supporting cast members also do a good job of what they're working with. But I. It's the kind of thing where I like John Boyega and I really like seeing him kind of dig into different kinds of roles. And so it was nice to see him in something like this where it is a, you know, it wants to be a tense film, but the way he plays it, which is presumably how uh, the real Brian Brown Easley was, he is a, you know, he's a Marine and he has is a certain, you know, a, a way of handling things. He has a certain manner. He has a certain sense of properness. He's just, he, the idea is that he's probably not a violent person. He's just been driven to these certain extremes. And so the mm -hmm. way Boyega has to play that is, He's all, you know, he's he's a live wire, but he's also like he doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I think that I, I think that aspect of the film comes together rather well, uh, trying to cover all the angles of this on the, on the, from the outside perspective, not as effective. But like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, the the way this thing, the way it opens for sure, I think is just really strong because you get a sense of who this guy is, and then it suddenly becomes this, you know, this essentially bank robbery thing, despite not being like a robbery necessarily. But uh, uh, I like the film. I think I think it's rather tense um, in the right kinds of ways. And again, I think Boyega is strong. But what, Alex, how do you think about the film? Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty much same as you. It didn't really hit me hard. Um, I really wanted it to because I think part of the problem was like I had read the synopsis before and the synopsis kind of covers all of it. You're like, oh, okay, uh, he's a you know he's a guy doing it. So by the time he gets to his like moment in the bank where he kind of like lets out and it tells his story, it just like didn't move me as much as I wanted. And I also thought that the um, the elements criticizing the VA while they're they're clearly there, they weren't strong enough. 
And I know I, I, it's a case of like the film is really well made, um, good quality, but it just didn't like like you said, it just didn't click completely. Um, and I like a lot of it. I just didn't just wasn't blown away by it. And I and I had hopes for it. Like I was thinking by the end, I'm going to be, you know, oh, wow, we're all going to be rallied by this guy and we're going to go change the VA. But by the end, I'm like, Meh. another unfortunately, another tragic story. Um, and it's. You know, it, it's not going to change people's minds as much as you hope. Which is the other thing is that this the sad tragedy of this particular story is that based on the real story is that you would hope that this guy's you know message and his plea and his whole point of doing what he's doing would affect people. And, yeah. it, and it you said it does for you, but um, it does as far as, a, as far as like I felt for this situation. But am I like you yeah, know, yeah, am yeah. I going out and like making a change myself? Like I I don't know what you know <laughs> the film didn't like really. Do, move me in a certain way to do that so i agree with you on that yeah that's part. what i'm saying that's what i'm saying it's like i i would you know by the end i wanted to be like we should all be you know protesting the va with signs tomorrow but it didn't hit me that way and i just wanted it to reach that height and it it didn't that said it's not that it's not a good film it's just not a great film <laughs> this is with a lot of sun and someone's like it's good but it's not great which is uh pretty common with these films it's the kind of film where yeah, and by the way, the director is uh, Abby Damaris De- Corbin, just to throw that out there. Um, it's, it's the kind of film where you have a lot of, like, actors that have, you know, they're fairly prominent. I mean, John Boyega is from Star Wars at this point. I mean, <laughs> he's, yeah, yeah. he's more recognized from Star Wars than Attack the Block right now. So it's like it's hard not to, <laughs> to point that out. But, like, it's the kind of movie where you get actors like this that to, like, build their indie cred, essentially, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, people that are breaking out with new stuff or, you know, some people you've never seen before. And on, on that front, it's admirable because I do think there's good actors giving good performances. That's, mm-hmm. quite, you know, that's, that's the, the, the prospect of getting good actors to begin with. But yeah, I do think it's a little shaky as far as conveying a stronger message beyond look how powerful these people are playing these people. Um, mm. Yeah, exactly. All right, what's that? Yeah. What's, an, what's another one, Alex? Well, I'm trying to think if I should name a documentary because I saw so many of them. But um... name one, name a documentary. I... Well, uh, I saw it recently. Is this film called The Territory? Did you hear about this one? Uh, did I hear about it? Maybe. I have not seen it. <laughs> yeah, it was very uh, lost in the mix, and then someone said it was great, and so I decided to check it out. It's this film from Brazil, um, or it was made in Brazil. I think it's an American director, and it's produced by Darren Aronofsky, of all people. Heard of him. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I hope so. Uh, so it has this kind of backing to it that is very clearly like they want the story to be told. So the story of the territory is that there's this uh, indigenous territory in Brazil in the Amazon rainforest, actually very close to Bolivia on the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. And it, um, it's, you know, the, this indigenous, like, has it, this tribe has their sort of area mapped out. And due to the, the horribly conservative politician and president that was elected, um, the last few years in Brazil have been really terrible, especially towards the environment. And one of the things that's happening is that the government is kind of pushing people to go on their own, essentially, burn down and re, uh, I don't know what the right word is, stake a claim on the land in the rainforest and then build like a farm for cattle. And it's really terrible because it's just this miserable story of what's happening. But this film really beautifully tells actually both sides of the story. So uh, the worst part about it is that there's actual footage of these these guys called like settlers is the name they give themselves. And there are these, like, Brazilian idiots who just go around and they just, like, trample their way into some rainforest area and are, like, 
this is my land now. And then they'll literally just burn it down. And it, there's like, it follows them half the time, which is to show their perspective and to, you know, get a sense of who they are. But the rest of the time, it spends with this indigenous tribe. Um, and they're awesome. It's this tribe of like, there's only 200 of them left. And there's this activist woman who comes and helps them and sort of fights with them. And there's this really remarkable moment in the second half where uh, my favorite thing about this tribe is that they're they're indigenous, but they're like modern. So they have video cameras and there's this like 20 year old kid who gets elected to be the like leader of the whole thing. And he's all about like hip new technology. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to take my cameras and we're going to do, do this on their own. And there's this amazing scene where uh, they, they're going around saying we're being um, invaded and we need to hunt these invaders. And it's like it, like they're saying that, but there's literally just dumb Brazilian dudes trying to stake their claim on the land. And they, they're going around and they have these like branded T-shirts. You know, it's like, you know, in high school, when your high school would make these like really cheesy, dumb T-shirts that were like, my high school's blah, 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 right? Yes. It's like it's like that, but to this awesome indigenous tribe in the middle of the Amazon. And they're wearing these T-shirts with going around with bows and arrows, like sneaking through the, the forest, trying to like take out these guys. It's awesome. Uh, and it's this really inspiring story of resistance and... Not only this the, the sad story of what they're going through as this tribe being threatened and their territory being threatened, but also like fighting back, like literally fighting back. They don't kill anyone, but they they talk about it in a few scenes. And then also just fighting back in a sense of how do you resist this uh, encroaching, I guess I could say fascism, but this encroaching invasion of people who want to take your land that is – for as long as your people have been around your land, you can't, they can't take it from them, but they're trying to. Um, and it's made into such a riveting and beautiful film. And I was taken by it really full, like completely. And, uh, it was just, it was just, it was one of these, like, you're just amped up by the end. Like, yeah, fight the power. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's called territory. Yes. The right. territory. The territory. Got it. Um, as I said, I have not seen the film, but it does sound interesting. Um, it should be on Net, uh, not Netflix on Disney soon because uh, Nat oh. Geo. Okay. Was, Nat Geo bought it and they drop everything on Disney Plus like once they release it. So. Cool. Oh, good to know. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get to see many docs. I only saw one actually, so I'll bring that one up now. It's called Second Chance. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. This is from uh, Ramin Bahrani, um, a director that I really like and. Um, I was like, oh, he's making a documentary. Let's see what this is. And it's not a subject that I would expect Ramin Bahrani to cover, but yeah. here it is. Yeah. Um, he focuses the, this documentary on a on Richard Davis, a former pizza parlor owner uh, who turned into the inventor of a concealable bulletproof vest. And in order to prove just how effective it was, it is, it was, he shot himself over almost 200 times. Uh, over the course of his career to just like prove like look look what look how good this thing is um i think the way this thing starts out i was rather intrigued by because richard the way you have the actual richard davis who's in you know he's an elderly man now um he's presented as this guy who right away you're like clearly i'm gonna learn something about this guy that's not gonna be great but there is a there's a certain kind of there's certainly there's a certain kind of charisma to him because you're you know you're you're happy to follow along with like the stories that are being told or whatnot and you learn about him and you get like other talking heads uh, from other people that are within his circle um and you learn more and more about this story and you learn about kind of 
what is really going on with this guy and why did he get into this thing and how effective were these vests and what have you and i think on the whole when it focuses on richard davis i think it's very effective i think you get a you, you can come up with a lot of opinions and ideas on what's going on here who this guy is and understand like how he sort of came to power in his own way and then where that went um the other thing that Baraharani tries to do is incorporate America's obsession with violence and guns. And I think the film is less effective in trying to do that just because it's it's a wide area to kind of try to encapsulate within this very specific documentary. At the same time, it does introduce like a few other people that prove to have some affecting moments uh, that I was surprised by. Uh, so like on the whole, I think it's a good documentary, but I do think it tried to bite off a little more than it can chew. Oh, well said. <laughs> I I really loved Second Chance actually. I mean, uh-huh. I'm already I'm already a fan of this filmmaker too. Yeah. And one of the first things that intrigued me is that the interviews he gets are incredible. And he said in the intro that he's a lot of his films are based on research anyway. So he goes out, he interviews people, he takes notes, and he makes a film off of it. So he's taking that ability and skill and applying it to an actual documentary now is mm-hmm. so incredible because I couldn't believe the things people were saying. He knows the right questions he asks. To, to ask to get these like remarkably honest answers, but also to like confront people and to get them to sort of like trip up and with, like with the main guy, I'm sure you saw this. There were many times when they were interviewing him where he was like, he, he didn't know how to properly answer because he, or he like would say something that was ridiculously dumb because his brain was trying to process the truth of like what, what uh, Ramin had said to him. Uh huh. But he was unable to, like, give the real answer, which is like, yeah, okay, maybe this was bad. So he'd just be like, whatever. And I'd be like, I can't believe he has this on camera. And he's – you know what it reminded me of? And I hate to make this comparison because so many people hate it um, – is the Tiger King. It was this, like, you know, stranger-than-fiction case of a, a dude who got extremely powerful in a terrible way with things he probably shouldn't have been messing with. And abused that power and then got mixed up in all kinds of crazy scandals and issues. And it plays very much soap opera-y in that way. Like his his downfall, or at least his uh, undoing, is this weird interaction with like another local in town. <laughs> you know, it's like stuff like that that just played out in it where I'm like, ah. <laughs> and, I, and I, like you said, Aaron, too, I thought it was fascinating the way he tried to tie in the bigger picture of America's obsession with you know, violence, because there's a moment where I realized like what he's trying to touch upon is this idea that, and this is what made me so sick when I watched it. It's a, it's a great film because my, my whole time, my stomach is like flipping on end. Cause I'm like, Oh, this is just disgusting. This guy. And the fact that Ramin Barani of all people told this story mm-hmm. because he's so sensitive with his films. Most of the time, he's got these really great stories about um, people who are just like living on the street and what I thought he was doing so well with this this documentary was telling you that this guy's entire career, his entire fame and fortune, everything was based on death and murder and killing. And that, that it was like this wink at this is what the American dream is. It's like, yeah, he was he made all this money and got very powerful and successful, but based on this culture of cops killing people. And I thought that was such a – I mean I appreciate that he took this story of a guy and actually applied that bigger picture to it because that's not an easy thing to do. And like you said, maybe it doesn't work in every single sense because it is a lot going on. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that he touches upon that. I'm glad that he's a, he reminds us in this film that like 
there is something that connects this guy to the culture of police killing people that we see nowadays that we're so we're way more visible with it now than when he first started his business and his when he first started his business all these videos of like the he would go around making these videos of of like cops killing people in this fantasy way like it was just it's so nuts that's i i just couldn't even believe this stuff i just it was amazing in a, in a really disgusting way I, I do agree with you as far as Abrahani's ability to kind of, as a documentarian, I, I do think he, in getting these interviews and whatnot, he's, he's certainly very skilled at that. And I really, I mean, if he wants to make more documentaries, I'm all for it because I do think he has a, a great talent for this as well as making feature films, uh, which is always interesting to see when you see directors that are, you know, known for, you know, they've already established themselves as feature filmmakers and also proved to be like great documentarians as well. And I do think he certainly has a style that he, has you know uh, developed uh, that really works for this and yeah, yeah there are upsetting aspects <laughs> that are going on here like i certainly think it's a good documentary um and yeah i do think the stuff involving you know the the main players as we're introduced to i do think that's there's a lot of good stuff. and it even ends in a way that i was like that's a <laughs> that's a that's a fitting way to to close this thing out so yeah Definitely. uh what's another uh what's another film you want to bring up um, I would love to bring up Every Day in Kaimuki. Did you, you know this one? <laughs> I not, no, I do not. I have not seen this one. Okay. Uh, it's a film from Hawaii made by a Hawaiian oh, okay. filmmaker. Yeah. And, All right. um, I, I didn't get to that. I got an email about this one. I didn't get to it. Yeah. It's a very, it's in the like next category. So it was one of these like made on a no budget kind of films, uh -huh. which is cool. Um, I'm always curious to see what they're about. And the concept in this one is kind of like based on a, a, a real story as in, in the intro, the director said, the main guy in it, Naz is his name, is uh, an actual, like, this is, he is playing himself. This is his real life. And he was, after growing up and living in Honolulu for most of his life, he was finally moving away to New York City. So they're like, let's make a film about this. And they made a fictional film about this real moment in Naz's life of uh, leaving Honolulu and leaving Hawaii. Um, and while I didn't love the film, I was really struck by it in many ways. Like, first things first, there's not a single shot of the beach in the whole film, which shocked me because this is a Hawaii film. But uh, the kid is kind of the skater kid. Like, he works at a radio station. He skates around Honolulu with his friends. He kind of spends most of his time in the city district. Um, and, like, it it doesn't feel cliche Hawaiian at all, which is cool because it's a, a different sort of take. But it does have this sort of simple sublimeness in the way it's dealing with the feeling of losing your home. And, and of course, it, being Hawaii, it's this paradise, and why would you leave? But um, as, the, as the director said in the intro, and I think this really is strong in the film, is he's like, every islander has that feeling of, well, you love your island and you love where you're from, but do you really want to leave? Because you're also feeling like you're trapped there. And you feel like there's more out there, but you also don't feel like you you really want to let go yet. And while this is a common theme amongst anyone leaving their their hometown, um, I thought this was really beautifully done. And it 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 didn't like it's not as emotional as I was expecting. Um, and it's a very uh, like you know some dudes with some cameras kind of film. You know, it's not really high production value. Um, and the, the only other criticism I have against it is it was made during the pandemic. So I don't mind masks in movies because it's necessary to capture the last two years. But 
I was expecting this one to be shot and made where they weren't dealing with that. But consistently throughout the movie, not only are they wearing masks because he's going outside, but there's like conversations about it. Like every time he goes into the radio stations, he's like, oh, don't forget to put on your mask. And, don't, and I was like, yeah, OK, I know it's a pandemic film, but it kind of took me out of it a little bit, um, which I think is interesting because we're now two years into this. It's we're a, seeing more and more of these films. It, so. it took you out of it by being real. Yes, but it's like there's a there's a big this is almost like a whole other podcast for another day. There's a big discussion in cinema where do you admit to the pandemic and do you make the film with masks or do you because this is happening. This is why I say this. Uh Or do you just make a film, you know, where on set everyone's following the covid rules, but the film is presented in a way where there are no masks and there's nothing to worry about. And I've seen both of them now. I've seen, you know, every version of this and. The mass one work when it's a film that is kind of meant to take place during the pandemic. But now that I'm so used to some of these films where they make it and there's no mass and there's nothing, there's no even mention of the pandemic. When you get to one like this where you're like, I just want to see this story, which is supposed to be about this kid leaving home. And it's kind of like muddled by the fact that uh, you're thrown into this real world thing where like, I guess I would say too much of it was talking about the pandemic. To me. That's that's what I mean, almost... I, I, sight unseen. Obviously, I can't comment too much, yeah. but I good. But I do understand what you're saying and it's it is interesting it is it'll be interesting to see where things go as far as how movies handle this kind of thing where i the only the only time it really affects me so far um as far as it's it's mainly in you know larger budgeted films where they seem empty because they had to follow certain protocols so you can't have like groups of people you know areas that would feel populated despite the film taking place in a reality that seems to exist outside of the pandemic but it so it feels like curiously cheaper as a result um, because it's like this doesn't feel like life it just feels like people on a set and there, yeah, were, no, exactly. there were no there were no extras um <laughs> yeah but uh, so that that film's called every day in in kabuki yes and that's directed by alika tengen yes uh i want to let's talk about the, uh, the 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 pair of regina hall films uh that came out okay there's yeah, yeah, yeah. let's first up let's talk about master um which seemed to have a lot of attention um uh, this year I mean, uh, i'd be curious if you have any thoughts as to why but i certainly have some this film stars uh regina hall as well as uh, zoe renee uh, regina hall plays a She's a ten- she's tenured, right? She is a tenured pre- yeah, she's because the other one's yeah. trying to get tenured. She's a tenured professor at a predominantly white college in New England. Um, it's I believe it's a made up college for the film, but certainly could be an analog for certain things. Um, while Zoe Renee's character plays a first year who's coming into this school um, and has already been assigned a room that is uh, supposedly cursed in some way, and the film largely revolves around these two women dealing with dis- disturbing experiences going on at this school uh, the the with the college with um, Zoe Renee's character Jasmine dealing with things that could be supernaturally related while Regina Hall's character deals with things that are more based in systemic racism and the kind of everyday occurrences or whatnot that set people off um that's the basics of this. I think this movie is really well made. Um, as director, writer, director, uh, Mariama Diallo, uh, I think there's a lot of good work going into kind of capturing a certain kind of vibe and atmosphere. Uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think, uh, the performances are quite strong and 
it's it's tricky because I do think the and this will occur in another film I want to talk about as well, but the supernatural <laughs> elements of this movie, um, I think it I don't necessarily think it's misguided, but I don't think it's handled well enough as far as how it's incorporated into the story, which already is interesting just because of how these people are responding to the atmosphere in their college. And I think mm. that that on its own, I think, works well for the story. But then you're also incorporating this kind of nefarious force that is intruding on the experience. And it's like, okay, I there is suitable tension in those areas, but is this adding to the story that's already being told? That said, I like there's certain there's a there's kind of a pivot as far as where things go towards the end that made me appreciate the film more by the time it ended because it gave yeah. me, it felt, I felt like it gave me more to think about compared to a more stock version of what this conclusion could have been. But Alex, yeah. how, how do you feel? I feel like you you're, no, I, you're I, on the same vibe as I am. On that. Yes, I, but, well, but exactly what you said about the end. I was like. I was kind of I was into it at the first half and then I was like getting out of it in the second half and then there's like that big thing at the end where I was like oh damn like uh-huh. okay, I see what you're doing here that was cool because I I thought like you said I thought really creative filmmaking really well done really interesting but a few I don't want to say mistakes but of like weird things I I wasn't really happy with um I'll say this in a way that you know what I'm talking about but other people who haven't seen it won't be spoiled but what happens with the one thing in the one girl uh-huh <laughs> i didn't like i didn't like how that played out and then but i liked what came in later and um i of of i mean almost opposite of you is that of all the racism as horror films i've seen aside from maybe like get out this is one of my favorite in terms of visualizing like how racism can turn into a horrifying thing um, I, I like that was, in theory. I like that in yeah. theory a lot. And I, yeah. I mean, it's the same. I think it's going to be something you'll talk about with Nanny too, but it's it's mm-hmm. similar to Nanny in the same kind of context. Um, yeah. And I I think like you're saying too is that Master will be, is worth talking about for the very specific things it discusses, which is basically systemic racism in universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved how how deep it got into that, like the. I guess the scenes at the end that you're talking about where you're just like, oh, dang, okay. And I like how it kind of shocks you with that question of, holy crap, look how racist these places are. <laughs> um, and and, the, and it, what do we do about it? And, you know? then, and then it also has like, there's another character whose past is mysterious to us. And the way mm. that's handled, it's like, and then it kind of escalates in certain ways like, I don't know what to think, but I'm certainly thinking. And I pre- that's yeah, what I yeah, appreciate. Yeah, I was yeah. like, how do you, yeah, me too. like, how do I, what, what am I taking away from this now? And yeah. like, I, I like that it, it ends messy on purpose. And I like that it does yeah. that. And I like that it, it gave me more to chew on. This metaphor, <laughs> I keep on this chew on metaphor. I like that it kind of gave me more, because I think, I do think there's a way that you could have done this. That's just like a definitive answer. And then it leaves right, people right. in a certain place and everything's, you know, not necessarily obvious, but everything's like, you know, it ends. This, obviously the movie ends, but there's there's more questions I have that don't feel like frustrating questions to have. Just more like, huh, hmm. I want to ponder that a bit more. So that, yeah, that, yeah I, I really, I, I appreciated that quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Well, let's talk about the other Regina Hall film. Um, Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. 
and, one, of, uh, one of the few I did not see. This is why I'm curious. Oh, you didn't see this film? Okay. No, oh, I, I did yeah. not. So this film is set up in a mockumentary format. So it's you know it's like a fake documentary, um, mm-hmm. where it has Regina Hall and Sterling K. Brown. Sterling K. Brown plays uh, the uh, the pastor of a a prominent Southern Baptist megachurch, and Regina Hall plays the first lady, is aka his wife, and the the story is set in the aftermath of like a huge scandal. Something happened involving the pastor, probably sexual in nature, um, and whether or not that was with uh, other women or other men, probably younger. Uh, that's it's there. It's not explicitly stated, but you kind of get some ideas. But now the documentary goes over how are they going to get back their congregation, and so it's kind of a big build up to their reopening their 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 point of reopening and their and it kind of gives you a lot of talking heads and a lot of like fly on the wall type type situations of watching these two deal with the people around them that either used to be their friends or are still sticking with them as well as others that were affected by all of this and even the documentary crew in some instances and as a mockumentary given the setup of this it is a comedy it is. It does want to be funny. It does want to be a parody of sorts of certain kinds of things. What I think it does wisely is not attempt to make fun of religion. Like that's not the part of this that's going on. Mm-hmm. I think it's similar in a way to something like Righteous Gemstones, where mm-hmm. there's obviously a backing there rooted in a certain thing, but it's not trying to make fun of that thing. It's trying to make fun of the people involved in it. And this is very much about the egos of these people involved, as well as the kind of political strategizing that they do to get back in the good graces of things. Um, I wish this film was either funnier or went for straight drama. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I don't think it's quite level, uh, um, living up to what it could be because mm. there are ways to make this, I think a lot funnier than it could be, but I would more prefer <laughs> that it played mm. into the drama a lot more because you have Hall and you have Sterling K. Brown who are really good actors and you get scenes and the film does lean on drama quite a bit, especially towards the end. Like it's not ostensibly, it's not, it's not trying to be a broad comedy, uh, but you know, the, the dry laughs only go so far while the drama of the situation, I think really excellently plays out when it needs to. There are some individual scenes with Sterling K. Brown that I think are rather excellent. There is a whole climactic sequence about the Regina Hall's character that is fantastic given that she's outfitted in a certain ridiculous costume that I don't want to spoil, and I know some images <laughs> exist that do spoil this, but I'd, I'd prefer to like Ooh. leave that alone. While okay. while she's giving like some really weighty dialogue uh, to Brown and other characters in the film, and it's a shame that this film's not better because the premise <laughs> is really solid, the acting is very strong, but it like I just don't think the script, the, the writer director is Adam Adama Ebo. I, I just don't I don't think it quite it quite connects all the dots to make this as strong as it could be. This is kind of, I I heard mixed on it and that's why I was kind of unsure of whether I should watch it but this is I mean you you've what you said makes me interested but mm-hmm. not sold you know I don't know. Well it's the kind of thing where the things that are good in it are great it's just encapsulated by a film that's not that great. <laughs> like right, that's that's right. the problem. It's like if you want to see it to appreciate very specific things those things are there. It's just you have to deal with a movie that overall isn't that good. <laughs> so right, right. Kind of well, of, of the two Regina Halls, which which is her better, or can you not judge them that way? I mean, she's very good in both of these things. Uh, like, I'd probably say, given what happens, she's probably more memorable in Honk for Jesus Save Your Soul. 
Mm, but okay. but Master is a better movie easily. Right. So. Right. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's not bad in Master whatsoever either. There's just a because of the the more outlandish nature of what's happening in Hunt for Jesus that you know it makes it you know it sticks in the mind <laughs> a bit more than the other one does. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. All right, what's next? I was going to bring up um, a, another double feature, of, uh, but in a negative way, unfortunately. Okay. Um, uh, the two um, Jane's movies, Call Jane and uh, the documentary. Um, Just the Jane's. The name of it. Yes, the Jane's. Yes. Yeah. I didn't Jane's, see the either of these, but I, okay. I didn't see either of these, but I'm aware of what they are. And that's yeah, interesting yeah, that there is both yeah. a, do- a documentary and a feature film. Uh, dealing yeah. with the same subject matter at the same festival. Exactly. Well, I, to be honest with you, I'm actually glad they programmed both because I would not have wanted to know there was another film and like it wasn't at the festival too. You know, hey, like show them both. I'm sure Sundance felt that way too when they programmed. Them, yeah, so. exactly, exactly. I saw that. I, I'll explain the story first. I, the story is about um, in the '60s, um, like the late '60s, there in Chicago, there was a group of women who decided to start sort of an um, clandestine underground abortion network. And uh, in the in the documentary, they explain it really intriguingly because they're like, uh, especially in the 60s, everyone was kind of riled up and all about, you know, revolution and everything. And they were just like, we're just going to do this because it's illegal. And, you, you know, it has, you know, we need to do it in a safe way. And so they just set it up without really thinking or caring about anything. Like they didn't do it in a showy way. They did it just to do it for safety reasons and to to offer this service. And they set it up really intricately where they would, like, pick up women at some point, drive them in a car. And they, like, hired other women to just drive these cars around, drive them in, you know, around the town to the secret apartment where some doctor guy would just be and would perform the abortion and then they'd go home. And um, the documentary is, the, the I think, the better of the two films because it clearly explains the story. And it's really cool to hear from all the original women who were involved and, like... You know, I love 60s stories because everyone talks about the 60s with this like super optimistic, positive attitude of like, yeah, we were going to change the world. And so we did something and they did something. They actually did do something. Um, Unfortunately, both films are kind of forgettable, uh, which is a shame because it's such an important topic to talk about nowadays with abortion and how important it is to have access to it. I mean, literally, the fact that this was done, this is in the 60s, too. It's something that happened 50 years ago. And yet um, it's still uh, 60 years ago now, and it's still being importantly discussed and become a necessary issue today, too. And um, so on the films, the, the, the documentary is just kind of very straightforward and, and just kind of generic in its presentation, which when you're watching Sundance documentaries, like there's a difference between something that's really incredibly cinematic and creative in how they tell the story and then something that's just here's the story. Mm-hmm. And as cool as it was to hear from these women, that documentary is just like, here's the story. And then the film. So um, after the documentary, I thought to myself, oh, man, this film could be great. <laughs> that was my thinking. Like, OK, there's a film. There's a fictional film. Uh, it's directed by this writer, um, Phyllis. Uh, I never know how to I don't know how to pronounce her last name correctly. <laughs> Nagy? Nagy? It's like it's like Najee. She said it in the intro, and I was like, "Oh wow, that wasn't what I was expecting." Um, and she is the writer of Carol, among other films. Yeah, uh-huh. 
So she's a very talented writer. I'll give her that. But uh, unfortunately, I would say she's not a very talented director. And the first problem with the film is that the film, I was thinking that they would have dropped, like they would have taken the story of this cool network of women driving around other women and, you know, taking them to these secret places. That's where I thought the story would focus. But the story is actually about like this random housewife woman played by Elizabeth Banks who needs an abortion. So she kind of just out of nowhere gets introduced to this network you know, goes through the whole process and then becomes one of the drivers and one of the participants in the network. So it's this, first things first, it's a weird outside perspective. And secondly, after they kind of cover the the whole concept of what this abortion network is, it just kind of like drifts into this other weird dramatic story in the second half, which just really loses all its steam. And it's such a mess with the characters. And my problem with her direction is that she she knows how to write good characters and have good dialogue but they just the performances were so mediocre and the whole film just felt like it didn't come together in any meaningful way and it was just like a mishmash of scenes and i always hate when this happens in a film that's like it's a good idea it's you know great actors but just none of it works and especially something like this where it had the potential to be this great story that i'm like oh i would love to see a fictional version of it and it was just a such a letdown to me I guess um, in both of these, it just felt that way. Like, ah, I just wish they were better. I'm looking at this cast, and there's quite a lot of notable people in the in yeah. the, the, in the the movie version of this this story. That said, given the subject matter, I guess that's why it's in a Sundance Film Festival as opposed to just being like a regular like Focus Films release or something like that. Because it's like yeah. you, have, you have Elizabeth Banks, Sigourney Weaver, Chris Messina, Kate Mara. I mean, there's there's a lot of like you know notable names among this cast, yeah, 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 yeah. but I can understand it not like you know being a a top priority item for a major studio that doesn't want to get into weird waters because of how the people are. I mean, um, but it's unfortunate. It's, even... it's unfortunate that the movie's not that great to begin with. Either, so. Yeah, I mean, and I thought I was worried that you know I was gonna be the only one saying this because especially because how many critics love Carol. But um, a lot of other critics seem to feel the same way as I did, which is which is interesting because, again, there was so much potential for this. And I, I think what's most, I guess, I don't know if sad is the right word, the most um, depressing thing about it is that watching the documentary and, and of course, this, the story that you know plays out in the film, I thought this is something that we should be inspired by, like, to do now, to go to these states where it you know has been recently told that they can't have abortions and it's illegal again, whatever, whatever, and be like, look – we're going to do this again. And I know that they've tried this. I think this, um, uh, shoot, there was a documentary in Sundance a few years ago and I forget about the name, um, about an abortion doctor who was like killed because he was performing abortions in one of these States where it's like so bad. But I thought there's something inspiring about watching these women say, we're not doing this again. It was most inspiring to see them say, we're not doing this to be activists. We're doing this because it's necessary. We're doing this because we have to offer a safe solution to women. And we're going to say, screw the laws, screw the feedback, screw the negativity. We're doing this for the women and that's it. And that's the most important thing. And I think that if, it, if anything, that's the lesson people should take home from these films. Like there's something deeply moving about that kind of power. Like it's, it just go do it, just start it and do it because it's necessary. Not, think anything else about it got it <laughs> so that's call jane and the janes um, yes okay yeah. um i'm gonna do one more and then we can talk about some favorites and then we can go back to some of the like heavy hitters that also came out 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, assuming that they're not some of our favorites. Um, but first up, I'm gonna or last up here, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna talk about Duel. Mm. Uh, uh, this is the new Riley Stearns film. He previously directed The Art of Self Defense as well as uh, Faults, Art of Self Defense, a film that Abe recently watched and really enjoyed. I was quite a fan as well. Um, this film features uh, Karen Gillan as a woman who <laughs> she's given a terminal diagnosis. Um, so, and this movie exists in a world where cloning exists and is legal. And so she decides she's given the option to have a clone of herself. And so she does. And then mild spoilers for the basic premise of this film turns out she's not actually dying. And in the rural reality of this world, uh, clones that have been around long enough are allowed to challenge their original to a duel to the death to decide which version of that person gets to keep living. Um, and things go from there. Obviously, this movie is offbeat, <laughs> and obviously it's also uh, trying to be a dark comedy of sorts. Uh, Aaron Paul also stars as a <laughs> as a, a dual trainer, uh, but <laughs> but the, the most notable thing about the film for, for me is that Riley Stern's I don't know if it's a deliberate thing or if it's just that he also shares this certain sensibility, but it's hard not to think about Yorgos Lantimos films while watching Riley Stern's movies, both this and, yeah, yeah, and Art of yeah. Self-Defense in particular, um, both of which came out after I had seen several Yorgos Lanthimos films, where there's such a precise way of handling the dialogue and a certain kind of stiltedness that's baked into what he's going for. It's not like a, it's not a flaw of the actors involved. It's just like, he wants to go for a certain kind of sensibility that I it's hard for me to even describe, but just there's a way there's like a matter of fact way that all of these characters speak that is unique to basically this this fil these films and the ones by Lantimos. Um, that said, as far as the film goes, uh, I enjoyed it. I do think it's fun is a weird word to use, but it is like a, a fun <laughs> ride into like what this thing is. Uh, Karen Gillan's very good here. Aaron Paul's really funny. Uh, in this movie, um, I I I like where it goes. If anything, mm. I, I wish I learned more about how this world works because it just presents such fascinating ideas to begin with, and I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it really yeah. explores that all that well. But overall, yeah. like it's a fun time. It's not one that I think it falls into that good not great category. Again, just because I think there's like I don't know if there what opportunities it could explore, but it does feel like there's certain things it could explore more that is doesn't quite do alex how about you i this is one of my least favorite films of the festival. really okay <laughs> i think that the concept when you explained it in uh it, like when you introduced it sounds cool you're like oh wow that's a good like, good idea but it, none of it works like the 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 strangest thing about it is that the whole film is really flat like i guess he's trying to play this um weird kind of awkward humor with with uh -huh. karen Gillan that just doesn't work to me like it just I don't know. I was just, so for, within 15 minutes, I'm like, okay, this isn't working humorously. I don't like her performance. And then it just like never goes anywhere. And then someone else said this and I thought it was an accurate criticism is like when Aaron Paul shows up and, you know, he goes into her dual training mode. It's like, it's just a repeat of um, Art of Self-Defense again, which I love so much more. Uh, so, you like that, so, you whole... like, so you like that a lot more. Yeah. So, and so I, you're I, into I, the, you're into the vibe that he's going for as far as this kind yeah. of thing you still think it worked out this time yeah and i i this is gonna be mean but i <laughs> i guess i should say it in the safety of our podcast uh is that i really think this is the case of a pandemic film that shouldn't have been made 
Like he, he, I think he wrote this and he shot this during the pandemic. He had to go to Finland because I read on Wikipedia that he couldn't find anywhere else to shoot it with COVID rules. Uh So he ended up going to Finland to shoot it. And it's one of those things where if at that point in the production, you're like, we can't do this anywhere else except Finland. That's when, that's the point where I would have been like, okay, maybe we shouldn't make this movie. Like that's a sign. Like nothing against Finland. It's not that it's more like by the time he got there and made it, I was like, everything about this film just kind of seemed doomed to me. Like the whole idea, because the other thing is that the idea conceptually, not the fighting, but the, the clone aspect is similar to this um, swan song film on Apple last yep. year with uh, Mahershala Ali. And like that film is basically the same concept of, okay, he he's going to die and he gets a clone and he's going to transfer the clone over to his new owners. Except what that film explores is, can he, does he believe in his clone enough to hand over his life to a new person, even though it's himself, and feel okay with it while not telling his family that he's doing this? And I thought that was a really – it's not a great – like, it's not my favorite or anything, but it's. I thought that was a much more fascinating take on this. Whereas Duel, you're like, okay, same concept, except that the twist is that she's not dying and she then has to fight her clone, but then that doesn't amount to anything. I'm like, that's like a Hunger Games concept if they want to explore it, but this movie is – as unhunger games as any movie could yeah, be. <laughs> there is a lot of subversion as far as what the payoff is supposed to be here. And yeah. that, that is a, that it, I mean it is a letdown. <laughs> Honestly, like yeah, it, yeah. there's a way to do this that I think would be satisfying that might even feel more generic, but at the same time it's like, well, I still appreciate it that they went for it. But um you know, it's a, you mentioned Swan Tong, yes, yeah, so it was hard not to think about that movie while watching this one also. And I, I think there are two sides of a coin that just isn't really more worth much value because I do, I do yeah, think yeah. both movies have great concepts uh, but don't really have much to say about said concepts despite having mm. like talented performers, performances within both. Like Mahershala Ali is great in that movie. I don't think that movie is very good, but he's great in it uh, in both roles. Um, but and, and similarly here, I'm not saying Karen Gill is great in this movie, but I do think like she does what's needed of her. And I do wonder how much of that comes down to what Stern's guidance is for how to make this thing yeah, what it is. Of course. And of course. like, and I agree. I think artist self defense is great. And it just—it's so weird to me that he, like, you know what I'm saying about the Yorgos Lanthimos thing, right? Like, there's such a yeah, very yeah, yeah, specific thing going on there where it's like, do they just both like this type of thing, or like, is one directly influenced by the other? Like, I just don't know. I don't know that answer, but it's. Well, that's, I would out. hope he would lean more into that Lanthimos feel. That's if he's going to do that and have yeah, that that's, like, super yeah. awkwardness, like go into it even more. I agree with and, you because that is something that Lanthimos is. I mean, he's very good at doing that thing, yeah. <laughs> and he knows how to pay it off. That's the other yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Oh well. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, that's dual. Uh, okay, so before we get, I know there's like, so, I mean, we'll talk about this, but let's just get to it. Alex, what were some of you, what were a couple of your favorite, what were some of your favorite films? Uh, from Sunday? Well, I'm going to name my top five and then you tell me which of these you want to sure. talk about. <laughs> uh, my top five are, um, well, top six, because I have to mention this. Fresh, Fire of Love, the documentary, uh, Riotsville, USA, the documentary, Living um, with Bill Nye, uh, Brian and Charles, this kooky sci-fi comedy, uh, and then good luck to you, Leo Grande. Those are my top six. Okay, I've seen two of those. I saw Living and what was the what was the first one you mentioned? Fresh. Fresh. I see. I saw Living and Fresh. So let's talk about Living okay. first. Okay. Living, I just saw last night. I I kind of I knew I was gonna love it. Um, I have yet to write my review because I want to go deep into it, but it's like I had just seen Ikaru last year actually. Uh huh. 
Um, Ikaru being like, a, a Kuros Kurosawa uh, film from 1952, right. I think. Yeah, go on. Crazy coincidence because someone had mentioned it in a tweet last year. I had time one night. I was like, whatever, I'm going to watch this one. I'd never seen this Kurosawa film. Um, of course, everyone, you know, critic-wise loves it because it's kind of one of his all-timers in terms of, yeah. uh, you know, what this guy's going it, – it's the all-timer in terms of the classic – uh, a man at the end of his life thinks about how he hasn't really lived his life and now he's got to live it in the, you know, time he has left. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, while also being an encouragement to the rest of us to live our lives fully before our life is over. Um, and this remake, I thought, uh, was the best. I, th- I think, to me, is one of the rare remakes that is as good as the original, which is crazy to say about a Kurosawa film that they're remaking. Like, who couldn't match Kurosawa? But I think this filmmaker's style is perfect for this story. Like, I uh, his his last film, Mafi, this South African one, um, was fantastic. I saw it really late after it had already been out, and I loved it. I was totally, totally taken away by it. The director so, is uh, Oliver Hermitus. Yeah, South African guy who um, he's explaining the intro to this. He was like, I'm South African. I was handed this British project with Bill Nye and he took it on and it's it's ravishing. Like I thought um, he makes a few changes. But other than that, it's pretty much almost a shot for shot remake of the Kurosawa film, which is fascinating as well, because it doesn't really change a lot. There's a few little tweaks here and there, but mostly it follows form and style like almost completely. Um, it's also like 40 minutes shorter, but yeah, I know what you're saying. It, it does, it it makes certain changes to both kind of minimize the the, the um, runtime, but also be more singularly focused, I guess. Yeah, but same story beats, like exact same copy yeah, of, you yeah. know, a government worker, uh, you know, same kind of characters, new guy coming into the job. Yeah, this you premise know, has just, not been altered. You know. Yeah, I hear you. Um, which is, of course, it's it's first things first. You're like, why wouldn't they change it if they're gonna, you know, give it an English language remake, so to say? But at the same time, and it's a story that works so well, and I thought his style elevates that story. Like he's just, I love his shots. Like every time he frames someone, it's not in the center of the frame. Um, and I love his music choices. And I thought one of Bill Nye's best performances. I mean, he's always great, but like this one, you know, again, you're like, hey, how can he? take on this performance that is one of the iconic Kurosawa performances in, uh, uh, sorry, an iconic performance in a Kurosawa film. How could he ever live up to that? And he, he does something of his own that is just really gripping and really moving. Um, and I was totally taken by it. I was just, as everyone else had been raving about it by the time I saw it. So I knew I was going to love it. And of course I did. It's the simplest way of saying it. <laughs> I think it's fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No. no, I like the movie. I think it's the kind of thing where because I really like Akira, uh, which I watched recently again just because I, I knew this was coming and right. and I hadn't seen Akira in a while. So I was like, all right, let me let me pop this in again just so I get a, like a fresh, fresh feeling of the film before I see the new one. But uh, like, no, I, I, I can't deny anyone liking this film because I think it's a very likable movie. I think the story itself is so universal that it's easy to you know, latch on to what's being, what's being done here and the kind of general messaging and what have you. And I, I feel like I, I'm good and bad with the choice to set it in the fifties. Cause it feels like, well, Akira was mm. set in the fifties. So this movie needs to be yeah. set in the fifties where it's like, well, what, what could have been done if you said in like the seventies or even modern times? Like what, what, what difference would that make at, but at the same time, I do think the direction is rather strong. I do think it's, 
mm-hmm. it, it chooses a uh, it's not academy ratio but it is a it, it's like a certain ratio choice um to make it distinct and even the kind of look of the film is modeled to slightly resemble films of that time period uh, with mm-hmm. some stylish choices as well um so it's like i like what you're doing i like how it's trying to while maintaining the certain premise it's trying to distance itself stylistically at least from the kurosawa movie and then it comes down to bill nye who is obviously great in this movie like he's all he's a great actor it's not surprising to me that he's great and this is maybe less about the movie more about how i perceive things but it's sort of like the the idea like say this was to go on to become like an oscar nominee for him and it's like i hate that when it's like this guy's been great for years and he's played much not even necessarily broader but like bigger performances that have really chimed in on a lot of his different kinds of talents but it's like the one where he plays the stodgy old guy it's like oh finally the academy's really gonna see <laughs> like let's give him a reward for this it's like when helena yeah, yeah. it's like when helena bonham carter was nominated for king for um for the, for the King's, King's speech. speech and it's like yeah. <laughs> like what, what? <laughs> like this is the yeah. like she's like all the wild performances she's given over the years it's like yeah but she played the wife in this movie so let's give it to her it's like okay <laughs> so it's, it's going to happen and you know it she's gonna get the nomination now, you're gonna have to gripe about this a year from now now now, now i'd be that'd be i'd be thrilled to have to gripe about this again now again that doesn't take away from how good bill nye is here and i'm trying not to let it, it but it, it does the, it's the kind of thing that does get to me as far as like oh man we could really see the talent it's like guy's been always good like it's like it's, it's he's always been a great actor but he is very good here and i do like uh, what he has a relationship with um uh, uh, a former employer relationship as far as like a friendship played by Amy Lou Wood who I think they have good chemistry together as far as yeah, the yeah, kind of like older man and uh, not like a mentor but just like a you know like a kindly platonic relationship they have there um, that's like fine and the the way it comes together I think you know I know where this is going but at the same yeah, time yeah. I was I was curious how like because Akiru famously it's not necessarily divided in two halves, but there's certainly like a distinct first portion of the film followed by a kind of an extended epilogue of sorts. Um, and that's, but I was curious how this movie would approach that as well, especially since it's so much shorter than the other film. And I liked how it went, went about it. I like how it kind of delved into what exactly occurred um, as far as Bill Nye's character and what effect that he had on people and whatnot. So I do think it, uh, like I, 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 I was kidding when I said fine. It's a good movie. It's just, it's just it's one where it's like, I I get what you're saying as far as you appreciate it as much as the other one is like I really like Akiru. So it's like yeah, this movie's good too. Well, I have actually my biggest thing with Akiru is that I I didn't like the 45 minute ending of the dudes just talking in the room. Like I get it and I get uh-huh. the forum and I get what's going on. I like this version better than that because I like that first things first they're in a train which was cool. Yeah. as opposed to sitting in a room and then secondly is that it's a more it's a slightly more streamlined version of that exact thing that happens in the end of the original um and it, I, it works a little bit better i can hear what, i can i can hear what you're saying i guess i'm just i'm just <laughs> i'm just used to kurosawa enough where yeah, like yeah, i yeah. i expect prolongness to his films right, it doesn't right, like right. affect me in the way that like other films nowadays, they need to earn their run times in some degree. Where Kurosawa was like, right. yeah, he came from a certain time period where that's just the way you do things. <laughs> like it's, it's fine. Yeah, like, I get I it. I get it. Um, the My other, other... Oh, sorry. No, no. The other, the other funny thing I'll say about this because because now that we can talk about it is that uh, more so in this one than the original. That by the time it gets to the end and he looks at the playground that he made, which uh-huh. is you know you know where he's going with this because it's the original. 
I was like, this is not a very impressive breakout. Yeah. Like, I was like, that's such a, especially this one more than the original one. I was like, okay, cool. This looks like a nice breakout. But in this one, I was like, that looks like a piece of junk in the back of the thing. I was like, why is he so happy with this playground? It's like cement and I wouldn't even want to play there if I was a kid. But we'll, we'll let him have his day with his playground. Let him sure. swing his life away. Hmm. Um. All right. You also talked about Fresh, which I did see as well. Um, yeah. Let, let's let's talk about a bit about this movie. I'll set this one up this time. Um, the, and I'll, oh, be, I'll be as vague as I need to be because there's certainly a <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an early twist that I'm not going to get into, but let's just say uh, you have a young woman played by Daisy Edgar Jones, whose uh, name is Noah. She's been on lots of like dates uh, through the various like match apps and what have you, and they all typically go horribly wrong. Uh, you get an example of that right at the outset. Um, and then she has a kind of, what do they call it, uh, a meet-cute with Sebastian Stan's Steve um, in a grocery store. And they hit it off, they go on another date, and things take a dramatic turn, uh, to say the least. <laughs> I won't explain exactly what it is, but I, I will note that basically Noah is in a very terrifying situation because Steve is not who he, he, who, who, who he seemed to be. Um, yeah. As far as where things go from there, as far as like me liking this movie, I think that I you're saying it's one of your favorites of Sundance, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the movie it's, like, it's like my favorite, the, the number one. The number one, okay. I think the movie, I think it's very strong. I like this movie <laughs> quite a bit. I think it's it has some of the more mainstream appeal uh, compared to like a lot of Sundance films. I think it's one that will easily like work for an audience. Like yeah, when, yeah, when yeah. It, it's coming to Hulu, right? It's like a Hulu release. Yeah, Searchlight. Yeah, Search. Yeah. It's a search, is this, is it, it, it's a searchlight release, which means it will be on. It will be on. Well. Okay, okay. Well, I I do think it, it's the kind of film that can find an audience, uh, and yeah. it certainly has ideas it's going for as far as you know the the what it is to be a woman in modern society, modern dating thoughts and toxic toxic men, obviously, and then there's a whole horror element that I won't get into, but it also yeah. you know it. It makes things very intense, and I do think that intensity uh, works rather well. Uh, there's a dark streak of humor in this, subtly layered in there as well, that I think is uh-huh. uh, is it, it hits the right ways. Um, I'm for me, I'm not sure the ending quite comes together as well as it could, but I do think there's so much that works in its favor, uh, including Sebastian Stan is very good in this film, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, that uh, um, yeah, no, overall, I think it's a good movie. Yeah. Okay. Fine. It's fine, right? Eh? It's more than fine. I think it's <laughs> it, it it kept it kept me on the it, it, it's 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 tense. It kept it kept me uh kept me tensed up given the yeah. way things are happening. <laughs> I think I really think that the comparison is accurate in that it's this year's Get Out. While it's not about racism, it's about uh dating women. <laughs> so so it's another major topic of the moment and um. You know, there's, it's hard to talk about it without discussing what happens because once – I mean, even the title, I was like, Fresh, what does it even mean? But now that you've seen it, you're like, ah, Fresh, I know what it means now. So it's hard to really say it without giving it away. But I – stylistically, I love it. And I also – I think I come to Sundance, you know, so to say, to find films where the filmmaking is – and this is ironic that the name of the film is Fresh, but the filmmaking is Fresh. You know, I want to see something where the filmmaking is edgy and exciting, but also dealing with a story and a topic that has like 
you know, something that you never really seen before or like mixes it up in a, in a brand new way. And I felt like this is the film that hit that note this year at Sundance and sort of, yes, it borrows the get out model and that some crazy shocking things happen. And then you have to deal with what's next. But uh, it hand, I, I thought it handles it also well that it's just, it's like a blast of a movie to watch. You're just like caught up in it the whole time. Like, yeah, this is crazy and great. And I think it's also the perfect film to see with a huge crowd. Like, just like Get Out, watching it with a full audience is going to be, you know, the best experience. I, I, guess, I could see that playing well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Also, and I, 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 real quick, I'm all, I'm, all, I'm all for opening titles that appear way late into the movie as well. Yeah. <laughs> this movie pulls off in an unexpected way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I I hope that as we're doing our best not to talk more about what happens, but I, it's like the kind of film where I really want people to have the experience not knowing anything going in, which is hard because as soon as they start the marketing, they have to start, you know, giving some hints and clues. And of course, you can read all the reviews. But like if, if you're a moviegoer who's, you know, excited about Sundance films, this is one that's like try to avoid anything you can about it, but also try to see it as soon as you possibly can. Because you need to go in without knowing what's next, because that that reveal is the most oh my god of the festival for me. Yeah, no, it's got it's got a lot going on. <laughs> Do yeah. you think it came together well at the end? Yeah, it's a little bit of a cheesy ending. Like it's kind of like um. They did what they had to do. What else I can think of the reference? Um. I'm asking just cause, I mean, if it's your favorite of the festival, I'm just, I'm just curious. So. Yeah, I mean, I, in terms of, like, favorite in terms of just the experience I had watching it was the kind of thing I live for at a festival. Fair enough. Like, just constantly, you know, excited. And, you know, by the end, you just want to grab the nearest person and be like, this film was great. You know, that kind of experience with it. All right. Well, that's fresh. Um, what, what were, uh, what, what, there was a one doc, the fight was fire... Fire of Love, yeah, the Fire volcano. Love. Yeah, that's one I wanted to see, but I didn't get a chance to. What, what, what's that about? What do you think of that one? Oh, it's so good. It's about, um, it's basically like a Werner Herzog movie, but not made by Werner Herzog. Uh, it's so about super cheery two... and uplifting, then. <laughs> no, but uh, it's it's very much Grizzly Man, but about two volcanologist uh, people. Um, they're these two French, like, nerds, I guess you would call them, who years ago. Uh, they met, they fell in love, and they became like the world's leading volcanologists before there was even, you know, a whole field of studying volcanoes. And this whole film is basically about their ill-fated love because they spend like 20, 30 years of their life flying around the world studying volcanoes, and they're basically just like hardcore obsessed with volcanoes. Like the 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 film explains that they'll just it's like mostly archival footage too, which is great. Mm-hmm. And the film explains, like, they'll just get a call from some friend who will be like, this volcano is about to blow up in Indonesia. You need to get here. And they'll, like, hop on a plane and fly there right away just to, like, hang out with the volcano, basically. Um, And, of course, it's amazing to see these two, like, super cool lovers geeking out about volcanoes the whole time and doing insanely risky stuff. Like, the the they were trying to do research on it, (laughs) trying because it was very – they admit in the film they're like – yeah, we just like hanging out with volcanoes, but we do research as kind of like an excuse to hang out with it. So they would go collect data and all this. But the the guy would like stand as close to the lava as he could. And the woman would just be like standing in the background filming him being like, oh, God, oh, God, you know, please let nothing bad happen to him. <laughs> and of course, this is a spoiler, but it's kind of part of the film is that 
uh, eventually they pass away in a volcano explosion in Japan um, together. So it's kind of like Grizzly Man in that you're like, okay, I know he's going to die, but he's but but these people are obsessed with nature, and it's an exploration of their obsession with each other and with nature and what it's like to live a life, uh, you know, of a, being obsessed with nature and of being obsessed with the, the planet, but also to live a life where you you never know when you're going to die. It's kind of like this risk. And, you know, of course, they ask the question a lot throughout the film, you know, why do you guys put yourself in this position? Why do you put yourself in danger? What is even the point of getting all this footage? You know, why why even there's a really I think the film really beautifully sums up and captures and answers the question by being the film, which is at the end of the film, they're like, what what do I if, if I'm the kind of researcher who could die at any minute studying volcanoes? What is the point of me doing this research? What is it? What's the end goal of it? And aside from making a really cool documentary about it, the research is meant to save lives for future volcanoes and wind. There's a really sad story where, like, uh, they gathered a lot of research from a volcano that had just erupted somewhere. I think it was, like, Italy or something. And then there was another one that was about to erupt in South America. And they gave them all the data and they said, you guys should listen to us. This is going to happen. Something's going to go wrong. And they didn't listen. And the volcano erupted and killed, like, 20,000 people in, in this country. And they were basically just really sad because they're like, we had gathered this data and we had told you guys what to do and they just didn't listen to them. And it was a really important moment for volcanoes and like the world to sit there and say, okay, we need to actually like listen to their research. You know, these, these two aren't just geeks running around jumping into volcanoes for no reason. They're actually trying to get something to help save lives here. Um, and as a film, I thought it was just like remarkable and really uh, the best of what it could be in terms of throw a bunch of archival footage together, tell the story, and make you fall in love with these two people and their, their adventures around the world with volcanoes. Well, that sounds fascinating. Like, I really want to check that one out when I get a chance to. Yeah, you really should. It's also, it's a it's a really, I don't say mainstream is the, not necessarily the right word, but it's the kind of film that, like, I could tell anyone I know to watch it and they would enjoy it. Yeah, no, it's I very, know. It's very, you know. It's, it's got a, a certain kind of appeal. I can see that. Just from how yeah. you described it, yeah. Uh, what were the other two that you uh, name-checked here? Uh, well, Riotsville, USA, The Dock. Um, but I would love to talk about Brian and Charles or uh, Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. Uh, yeah, talk about Good <laughs> Sure, talk about good Luck to You, Grillo Grande, and then I'll go over my uh, my favorites. Okay, okay. Um, good Luck to You, Leo Grande is a, a very intimate film about uh it's it's set in one hotel room and it stars emma thompson as this aging woman who um her husband has finally passed away and i say finally because she's books uh a encounter with a sex worker um who is the most attractive irish man they could ever find and cast in this role (laughs) like everyone melts when they sees him when they see him and um, she goes in and admits to him she's never really had good sex in her life. And she's like, now that her husband has passed away and she's the only man she's ever been with, he's the only man she's ever been with, she's like, I want to have a great sexual encounter. I really want to feel the beauty of sex. And uh, the film is basically split over three chapters. And it's essentially like the first chapter is her having this conversation with him. And it's this really beautiful story of um it's made by a filmmaker named sophie hyde and she did this film called animals a few years ago at sundance um and she has a really smart female like gaze that kind of 
with this film. I thought it was this like beautiful guide for women who have never really been able to get into sex and have a, like have all these questions. And the film answers every one of these questions. Like the first chapter deals with her asking all these questions like, is it okay that I hired a sex worker? I feel so bad about it. Like, what's wrong with it? It's, you know, and the, the guy is basically like, no, 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 no. This is my job. I'm happy to do it. I want to please you. I want to participate in this. Like, my, I want to be here to make you feel good. And then the second part of it is basically like her learning what good sex means. And, you know, like, it's not explicit. And that's the, the really sensitive thing about this film is it's really touching and really um both literally and metaphorically <laughs> and <laughs> and uh and very very like like it takes you to this point where you feel enlightened by the end and i was just really taken by it i was really i was really moved by it i was like okay i'm not gonna i can't sympathize with this woman in this situation but i was just so impressed by the conversation they have you know it's one of these classic sundance films where it's like takes place all in one room and it's basically 90 minutes of conversation between two people uh-huh. you know almost like before midnight and before sunrise and that's I, was about, I was about to say it sounds like, like a link letter type of thing yeah. yeah exactly but but with such a fresh take and from a whole different perspective because it's made by a woman about a woman and about a woman who an older woman who's trying to question her sexuality and trying to understand pleasure and it was such a fresh take on this that I was just like so I, – I just I, – I kept thinking about it the whole festival. I, I have been, been recommending it to a lot of people. Um, and I, I love when there's this the, – the kind of intimate you know, one-on-one film where it's actually really well done, where the whole conversation for all 90 minutes is interesting the entire time. You know, you're never really bored because, you know, how do you make something like that work for 90 minutes? But this is a great example of it working so well. And achieving uh, a lot in the, the the time it has to converse about sex, and of course, do it in a way that's open. You know, not afraid to say, "Hey, this is what sex means, and this is what you should be, you know, open to, and this is what you should be thinking about, and you shouldn't be afraid of these things." Which is so great to see in a movie. Okay, and you have Emma Thompson there, who I assume. I mean, that probably helps, just given that she's a you know oh, yeah. a strong actor as well oh, as yeah. a writer. So I mean, it's a there, there's plenty to, I'm, sure, I'm sure to work with as far as making you know that premise and chemistry come alive oh yeah she's she's excellent the two of them are just perfect together i really i don't know who the guy is i think he's some new guy but he's uh aside from the fact that he's remarkably attractive and and uh endearing um their chemistry is excellent like they they play off of each other in just the right way it's really really lovely he is a Daryl McCormick is the actor apparently. Yeah. Okay. I will uh, let me go over some of my uh, my favorite ones here. I'll just list my top five and then we can start talking about them. But my yeah. my favorites of the festival, I this is either way as far as number one. But after Yang and something in the dirt, um, Emily the criminal, uh, emergency which you talked about, and then resurrection. Um, I want to talk about after Yang uh, first. Um, this is the. Uh, did you see all of these films? Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> okay. uh, this is the film from uh, Koganada, who directed Columbus a few years back. And this is his follow-up film. It, it, it debuted at, Kane, at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it's it's screening here. It stars Colin Farrell, uh, Jodie Turner-Smith. Uh, it's set in a, it's once again set in a kind of like a future of sorts. Like it's like a not far future, it would seem, um, where. 
uh, it's a world where basically androids exist, and this family has a young android named Yang who malfunctions. Um, and so the father, played by Colin Farrell, he he wants to either figure out how to repair him or take what other other means are necessary to deal with the situation at hand. And the story focuses on kind of his journey to figure out, like, if it's right to just fix him or if he should respect maybe the soul that this thing has, despite being a, you know, a robot and letting it, you know, letting things move on the way they need to as far as what to do next for him and his family. Um, mm -hmm. I, I will say right now, this movie has maybe the best opening credit scenes I've seen in <laughs> yeah. many years. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I love it so much. And it's this like burst of energy that the movie never tries to replicate again. It, it, like it almost yeah, feels like yeah. a like a dare or a lark that Koganata went on. It's like, yeah, sure, my films are studied and very sp deliberate and specific in shot choices, but what if I just had this fully colorful, high energy opening sequence that just throws you through a loop before I get to like the main story I want to tell? Uh, and it's <laughs> there's not much more to describe on that beyond the fact that the movie never replicates that kind of feeling again and yet i didn't mind it like it certainly set me up for something and i didn't i didn't think the movie's gonna be like this the entire time but it certainly put me in a certain kind of mood where i was like this there's a big smile on my face right now because of what i just saw happen and then the rest of the film is not even necessarily somber but certainly at a lower key and going from there I really, I really enjoyed the journey that Colin Farrell's character took. I do think it meanders a bit, but for a film that's, I believe, going to be released by A24, that's, it's this, it's a a PG movie that is so like soft in wanting us to learn more about like these characters and this world to an extent, but just how these kind of android and there's, I think there's even clones in this world, like all this stuff functions. Um, that I was just really taken in by. The performances as well as like what the story is trying to do so i i i really liked after yang i thought i thought it was really strong alex what do you think yeah i agree i um i saw it in can and then i actually watched it again a few days ago here uh i, I still love it if it, it would be on my top 10 here if it was where i saw it for the first time but um uh -huh. I, i'm also really i remember in can i don't know it was, a, it was a very strange time it like premiered in the middle of the day and I remember like losing my mind and loving it, and then all the responses were really mixed. And um, I was worried because I thought, hey, this is this really beautiful film, as as you've clearly seen. Uh, and then apparently he edited it like like nine or so minutes less here in Sundance. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, like I I can't remember exactly you know what was missing in this. I just think he kind of tightened it up a little bit. Probably, yeah. And I I think. The, the best thing to me is that the reactions from here have been so positive. And I was just so much happier to see that because I'm like, hey, there's this beautiful film that I hope other people love too. And they are, and they've been so moved by it. Um, and I think it's also a good film worth discussing because Coconut is very crafty about hiding a lot of details in his film. Yeah. Like, you, you like he, it's, not, it's not really clear what he's trying to say in it, you know, but there's obviously a lot going on in it. And I, I would be curious to listen to your full episode if you guys ever discuss it, because I I really want to sort of pick through it and try to make sense of what it is. And, you know, aside from the surface level take on memory and, and what it means to be a family and, and essentially what it means to be human through the eyes of a robot, um, mm -hmm. 
I was also just very intrigued by its interpretation of mm, like life in general and the the I mean I think the, the strongest thing about it is the family element. You know, a lot of what Colin Farrell goes through is this realization of yeah, there's this robot character and what are we going to like this this robot that has been an important part of our family but can we just get rid of him? But also he's been an important part of the family no matter what. Um and that's meaningful and I don't know. There's a lot to it that I just think is really wonderful. You mentioned the response that last year when it first premiered at Cannes and versus now, and I wonder, not that like you know like I like seeing movies in a theater, like I like seeing a big screen of anything really, but this movie is very intimate, and I do wonder if like a Cannes audience that's full of like a lot of like you know people that all want to gather together and see something like this. I wonder if there would be a different response if it was viewed in the way it was here, where it's most, pretty much almost all at home, right? Where people are watching this movie and having their own kind of personal journey with it, given how, you know, kind of how small this film plays. You know what I mean? Do you think that made of, along with just yeah. being, being tightened up a bit, like I can imagine a movie that's a version of this that's nearly two hours and, you know, is not a... It's not an extroverted film, necessarily. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I wonder if that does make a difference. I mean, clearly, mm. uh, not necessarily that this is the reason, but if you know one audience is liking it differently than another, I wonder if that factors in. Yeah, I see your point. Actually, that makes it maybe that's a good thing to think about. I, I mean, I would love. I, I thought it was great on the big screen too. <laughs> Can't deny it. I, uh-huh. I, I think what I love about Coconata, is, uh, Columbus especially, he very much established the fact that he can like his framing and his what he puts in the frame is so meticulous. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to After Yang, but it's like way more minimal in this one where um, like the shots are just so clean. And I just love seeing that on the big screen because I think that makes a difference. But at the same time, I see your point about maybe there's just something that people are drawn into it. I don't, whatever the case is, I'm just happy people are connecting with it. Sure, for <laughs> sure. And I, I guess more like, yeah, you as an individual, I can see like someone appreciating it on the big screen. But perhaps like whatever that shared atmosphere is, if there, if something feels like it's because even I said I think the movie meanders a bit. I think if there's a you know a slightly longer version of this movie that everybody's watching in a crowded theater, it can in the midst of seeing all these other movies that maybe have different. You know, if you're watching Tatane right before you watch After Yang, like there might be a, a certain apprehension to like how to embrace something like this. Maybe. It's, it's, yeah, I agree. Thinking. Yeah. But this is why I'm always curious uh, whether or not a filmmaker decides to edit it after a festival, because that's exactly sure. what he can do. He can say, hey, we played a can and this is the reaction. I think I actually think the main reaction was it's too slow. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's exactly why he went in and kind of tightened it up a bit, because he's like, hey, you know, the core of the story is there. And that's obviously what I connected to. But if he can clean that up a bit, then maybe the audience will connect with it more. And of course, it's clearly playing out that way now. Yeah. So he might have picked up on those kind of aspects and think, okay, yeah, I can work on it a little bit and make it play a bit better. Um, and I just, it's, it's, it's also just such a clear from now on. I'm like clearly Kogunaga, who used to be just making video essays. Yeah, yeah. He's clearly an extremely talented filmmaker. Um, and if he can do this with two films, I mean, bring on any and everything he wants to make from now on, please. Yeah, let's get Kogunata signed up for that Akira live-action remake. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but seriously, he would be awesome for that. Come It'd be on. something, yeah. yeah. Um, we'll be talking about the next film here, Something in the Dirt. 
this is uh, yeah, yeah. the latest film from Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, two genre directors that I really like. I'm a big fan of their previous films, The Endless, Spring, Synchronic, Resolution. Um, this film, uh, it's shot very much in the how they began doing things, which is basically DIY. Um, where they star as they themselves star as the main characters in this film. Uh, they're living in an apart LA apartment building. Um, one is this kind of surfer dude type guy who's come to LA and has a bit of a shady past. He doesn't really want to get into. Uh, the other guy, uh, the first guy is played by Justin Benson. The other one played by Moorhead. Uh, he. He has a similarly interesting background as far as he's involved in some kind of evangelical church that's very much rooted in things involving like conspiracy theories and what have you. Um, the two of them discover in uh, the, the one of the apartments that there's some kind of strange, bizarre science defi science defying occurrence taking place, and they decide to document it. And not only did they decide to document it, they decide to elaborately document it where they're like kind of reenacting certain things and adding in like pseudoscience and talking heads and what have you. And it kind of expands from there, both as far as how far this documentary that they're making about this event goes, as well as how this relationship between these two guys uh, kind of draws out. Um, I like this film quite a bit because I just like these guys. I think they're really talented yeah, filmmakers. Too, yeah, yeah I, I think they they have such an interesting way of going about taking on genre that it's not like it's necessarily like outright de defying like what it is to be a sci-fi movie, but like they have such a unique approach to these things that I just yeah. really I really like what that is, and I, I like the. The, you know, we talk. You already talked about like, um, the, you know, kind of filming in a pandemic. This movie certainly filmed in a pandemic, but like the situation that requires it, it doesn't like make a difference whether or not that's even acknowledged. It's just like mm. <laughs> we're just we're setting this thing in this small apartment complex, and that's it. Like you don't really leave this place whatsoever, and mm -hmm. you, you just like sparingly used visual effects. Um, and when they are used, they're quite effective because these guys are just good at that thing. So it's like, yeah. and then you have. They're also like they are talented actors. Like I like the kind of screen yeah. energy that they have, both together as well as just as performers themselves. Like they have this sort of naturalness um, that really, really works well when it comes to heightening the tension between them as these two guys that have basically bonded over a thing but are not friends. <laughs> um, so it sounds like you like this movie as well. What do you What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I, I I agree with a lot of what you said. I had a weird experience watching it. Um... Like, there was some problem on it everyone was talking about where, like, you couldn't watch it on the TV. So I watched it on my laptop, and it, like, kind of took huh. me out of it. Um, yeah, it was, like, a security issue thing, the, the festival. I watched it, like, at, like not the day of its premiere or whatever. I watched it later, so maybe that was different. Maybe it just worked out. Well, I don't know. Whatever. It's just, it doesn't matter. I'm just um, like, I didn't have a, yeah, I, I had no issue with the, the viewing experience. <laughs> Well, it was it was only because I was like expecting to love it, love it, and then I was like, oh, okay, it was it was cool. I I think um, I don't know. I think you you touched upon all the the, the best parts about it, which is it's just such a creative take. And I I mean I wasn't expecting this at all from these two, and yet I'm delighted by the fact that they like put themselves in front of the screen and made this kooky conspiracy theory movie and did such a good job with it. And um, as you also pointed out, subverted a lot of the even concepts of what should happen like i like that i like and i don't like that their films like every one of the films they've made they never really amount to some big sci-fi ending they kind of like peter out 
which is like really good in what they're doing as in they need to subvert it and do something different but at the same time i'm like i want something to be bigger at the end i, <laughs> I this think one is like, i think spring is the closest one they get to like doing something <laughs> to that degree. yeah 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 <laughs> but i mean this is their style this is their thing and yeah. I, I as a I, I, the other thing that kind of it, it bothers me, but it's part of it true, is that I would I was gonna say that this film is destined to be like a cult classic and one of the better pandemic creations that people can kind of discover and be like, wow, that was a really cool little indie film that some two dudes made. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've been waiting for these guys to like break out and make something major and be accepted as like mainstream filmmakers for what is it five films now? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm like, I feel like if the pandemic didn't happen, Synchronic could have helped with that because I really like Synchronic yeah, as well. Yeah, it's yeah, it's more too. mainstream, but now they have to settle yeah. for you know directing episodes of Marvel's Moon Knight. <laughs> but maybe they did a good job i'm sure they probably did i'm curious to see if their sensibilities track in a disney plus tv series but i'm not against them doing it no the the worst part Aaron, is that them doing the marvel show is going to make them mainstream not their five awesome indie genre films you Uh know like yeah you're going to be like well now you know these guys great but have you seen their five films (laughs) you know might as well go back and watch them please um because they deserve it they're they're also that's the other thing is i don't want them to lose their edge like everything they make is so original that i don't want them to start making something that isn't original aside from marvel like they need to keep doing this kind of content uh that's way that's the wrong word to say you need to keep doing these kind of indie films <laughs> because there's something cool about something that is not the typical thing and that they, that they've made entirely with their own ideas and their own sensibilities and it, it's, it's cool it's really cool i dig it I, I completely agree with you. Like, I do look forward to what they keep doing and want that thing to be yeah. in the way they want to keep doing it. So yeah, exactly. We'll you know we'll see what happens, but like I, they are very talented. So even if they did into enter into a more of a mainstream world, I'd like to hope that they can still pull that off with a plum as well. Uh, the next film here that I mentioned, uh, well, let's talk about Emily the Criminal. About that. Yes. Um, why don't you Please. talk about this one? Um, it's dope. <laughs> this, is, this is also on my top 10. Uh, Emily the Criminal is with Aubrey Plaza, and it's a really, like, slick-focused thriller. Um, the Uncut Gems comparisons are a bit, eh, sort of work, but don't. <laughs> yeah, that's not something that came to mind when I was thinking about yeah. this film. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Like, the, the intensity goes up as the film goes on, and she plays this, uh woman riddled with student loan debt um and she's trying to get a job and she's working another job and she has a criminal record that's holding her back from a lot of things yeah even though it's like a dumb you know thing and so she gets tipped off to go join this credit card scam um and it's this kind of thing it's basically (laughs) i thought it was great because it's uh, I'm sure we've all had our credit cards stolen because it happens to everyone. It's basically, if you've ever wondered what happens when someone steals your credit card, this is the answer to that question. <laughs> this is that film, uh, which is exactly what happens. They put your number on a card. They give it to some random stranger like Emily, who becomes the criminal, and she goes off and buys something with it. And then they cancel the card, and the item that she bought is then now in the possession of some other shady criminal group, which then sells it off. Mm-hmm. Um and she kind of gets caught up in this game and it you know goes more and more and more and what i love about it is in addition to the filmmaking being really like thrilling and and you you know you get into it and aubrey plaza is fantastic is that there is a little bit of this commentary in it about 
why the life of a criminal and why the life of this, you know, sketchy doing shady illegal stuff is actually uh, enticing and almost, I would say, better for her than the reasonable life of go to get a corporate job. And I, I love there's one scene where she gets um, berated and then she gives them crap in return for not taking a uh, unpaid internship when she's like, I'm making money doing credit card scams. What's wrong with you? Um, and I thought that the film is just really, like, really cool. It really, uh, just, yeah, it's great. I don't know. What do you have to say, Aaron? Uh, I think the film is really well, like, made. It's very, not necessarily stylish, but it certainly has a certain, like, I, I've heard Uncut Gems. I heard Michael Mann be thrown around. It's like, oh, yeah, on a, on a, oh, yeah, on yeah, a really yeah. small scale, sure, this works like a Michael Mann-type thriller. Um, and, uh, no, I, I appreciated the tense aspects of it as far as like how it like functions as this you know uh, it's like wait, like 80 something minutes it's like a really streamlined thriller uh Aubrey plaza is quite good she's playing she's kind of like not, not as subverting but she's like playing new shades of a kind of character she's played um which works well here theo rossi who's like the guy in charge of this credit card scam thing my my mm. issue my issue with him is he's not bad at all but he's played so many scumbum guys where it's like, well, clearly like, this is not a good guy to be dealing with. It's, it's like it's <laughs> yeah, hard for me, it's hard for me to like separate myself from. It's like there's no version of this that's gonna go well for you. And it's like yeah, I, it's a thriller, obviously, and obviously drama needs to happen. Um, and there's again, it's not it's not a problem casting certain people, but it there is a kind of like my mind is working too fast for where this is going to go instead of me just letting it happen. That said, there are a lot of great standout sequences that take place as far as I don't know what the solution of this is going to be. And I like seeing how the director, uh, John Patton Ford, um, how he kind of works the script to tell this story um, and make it as, as efficient as it needs to be. Uh, I do, like you mentioned, the, I, I do like the kind of the dilemma it presents as far as a character that has so much debt could find, you know, better earnings doing crime than, than not. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it needed to push on that more, but I also wonder, or I don't even know how to like, if this is a concern, it's more of like Theo Rossi plays a character who's Lebanese. Um, Aubrey Plaza. I mean, she, she has like a, a, a South American like background, if I'm not mistaken, but she's ostensibly like, a white girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's, yeah. I, I, I was trying to like, it's like, are we positioning this as like, well, these people do this thing and it's drawing in these, you know, <laughs> these innocents into this and this is how it is. Like, I don't know how to phrase that exactly, but it, I did wonder yeah, yeah. if you cast somebody different, if you like, would, would this movie like, mm. would there, would, would it become problematic by that? And I, yeah, that makes sense. It was it was it was a weird issue to like wrestle with, but <laughs> I do think the movie's re- is still effective as a thriller. It is tense. I do like the kind of the ending it goes for, like where it climaxes and what happens next. There's a lot of mm-hmm. tragedy <laughs> that takes place. Yeah. So it's like I mean it's you know it's one of my favorites at the festival. Like I thought it was really effective. Um, yeah, yeah. And I there's agree, a lot, and, and there's some good like. Um, I'm not going to take your shit moments <laughs> that, that, yeah, come, that yeah, come out yeah. of this that I think were really effective as well. I actually, the comparison I thought of not uncut gems was this, um, uh, po- uh not poker, blackjack movie 21. Cause I was like, I like the way it kind of like you get introduced into this criminal world and then it kind of like you follow someone as they go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And you learn the tricks of the trade and how it works and all of this. Like I appreciated that focus 
too. Like I, someone else said this and I thought it was a great comment is like, I, I, I like when a movie isn't afraid to show you the actual ins and outs and the details of how the scams work and not just like show you her doing it. Like you actually learn about it, which is really cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate that for sure as well. Even like how a credit card machine works as far as making yeah, a credit exactly. card. <laughs> it's like, that's some interesting detailing. Um, okay. Sure. Let's talk about Resurrection. <laughs> Another film that oh boy. Oh boy. garnered plenty of reactions, uh, not unlike, yeah. I'd imagine, Fresh, uh, for example, as far as, like, oh, it's going to certain places. Um, this film stars Rebecca Hall. Um, it's written and directed by Andrew Siemens. Uh, she plays a basically a, a single mother and businesswoman who seemingly lives a good enough life. She's a bit of a helicopter parent to her daughter, but, you know, it is what it is. She's doing her thing until the arrival of Tim Roth, who plays a man named David, who has a past history with Hall's character, Margaret. And it basically upends her entire life um, just from him existing in within her within her you know within her the city that she's occupying again and i i won't detail more than that but i'll just say that there's a there's a form of psychological torture that seems to be going on um uh, yeah. that, that you have to wonder is margaret making just a bunch out of something or is there something even worse taking place um i thought yes. this film was very effective yeah um, me too. i i really like how it plays as a slow burn um, and then certainly tries to deliver on something towards its end. Um, <laughs> Hall is great in this movie. Between this and the Nighthouse, which I was not huge on, but I certainly liked, um, she's really good at playing like psychologically damaged characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. if that's a compliment, but it's certainly effective here. Uh, and yes. Tim Tim Roth, he is like I, I feel like it's been a while since I've seen Tim Roth play like a, a real villain and a bastard in a movie. Like I feel like I've seen softer <laughs> versions of him late but he's playing a real bastard and a villain in this movie and it's yeah. it's very but in a, but in such a like low-key way no that's the thing Great. yeah because it's a slow burn and you don't really know where this is going there's a lot of implication and a lot of like there's a lot of affectation on how you're hearing things that it's like this could go a number of ways and i'm not sure which one it's going to choose um yeah. but yeah I, I i really i really like this one because of not just where it went, but because of like that game that it's playing with you throughout the film. But Alex, it sounds like you were you liked it as well. Yeah, no, same. Everything you said is is then on. I, I, it's the most. It's the film I've had the most conversations about with with various colleagues and friends because I, <laughs> I, I mean, it's hard to talk about because I don't want to spoil it. And again, I I would love to hear your full episode on it. But uh-huh. uh, I had a theory about it that I'm like, oh, it's supernatural, and this is what's going on. And then every time I talk with, about it with someone, they're like, no, 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 that's not it. It's this. And I'm like, oh, my God, maybe it's that. You know, like, I don't know what it is. And I and I love the kind of film that gets under your skin in that way where you're like, I don't exactly know what's going on. But you're so, like, freaked by what you're watching. Mm-hmm. And you're so caught up into it. You can't shake it. And it's the kind of thing where you don't want bad things to happen to this person. <laughs> so you're so concerned. And, and, and it's revealing yeah. new, new layers. It's like, yeah, I... I I can't help but be compelled by this. Yeah, exactly. I dropped the Kubrick comparison, which a lot of critics gave me shit for, but that's fine. But it's, I thought, um, aside from Possession, which is similar to, I thought I Uh, had a Kubrick feel because I felt like every single frame, there's something that's in the frame or there's something that's going on that's almost like you can't describe it, but there's a feeling in the frame. And, and, you know, like for the first half of the film, I was like, "Eh, these, these are just regular shots. And then I started to realize like, 
oh, there's something going on. In every shot, there's something going on, and you don't know what exactly, and it's leading you on to it. I kind of like The Shining in a way, where you're like, there's this ominous feeling throughout the whole film, but you can't really touch it. It's just there. Polanski comes and, to mind also in that moment. Yeah, yeah, and it's just there's something creeping through it, and it's so, it's like, in addition to the script being this really tricky, like, what the heck is going on kind of thing, This the, the actual filmmaking is like, so captivating and so um twisted in a way and i love i would say lanthimos but not full lanthimos more uh um polanski and and it's, Kubrick it's, it's too emotional so. <laughs> to be a yeah, yeah, film. yeah. <laughs> and it, i i i i really want to hear everyone's theory on it because it's like i don't think I, on one hand i think there is a, an actual answer but i also think that everyone's theory could be right like everyone's different ideas like yeah that actually that could work for this too like what the heck is going on in it who are they i think the surface level presentation of it which is i won't say it but it's like the the obvious maybe this is what's happening to her is the one that a lot of people have seemed to settled on to settle on in terms of what they really think is going on but at the same time i'm like I can't just buy that that's it. There has to be more to it. I, I like Especially the, with the ending. I like that the film chooses to let the to trust it chooses to trust the audience to just kind of work out their own reasoning. Yeah. Like I, I think there's a there would be I think there's a way to make this a more deliberate kind of film like as far as where it stops, but I I I think the film instead chooses uh to I mean, again, make it messy as far as like there's a lot of ways you can take what just happened <laughs> by the end of this yeah. thing. Um, implications and understandings and what have you, but uh, I like the film doesn't outright like say this is what it was all about. Instead, it yeah. kind of leaves it up to you. That's why I don't buy that it can just be this surface level like woman dealing with a man from her past. Like mm-hmm. it can't be just that, <laughs> but it but it might be. It might be. There's also a standout single shot monologue that takes place like in the middle of this movie. That's pretty yeah. excellent. Yeah, of course, it's awesome. All right. Um, there are some obvious ones that we haven't talked about yet, so let's save that for last. And real quick, let's talk about like what was your worst of the film, and I'll talk about my worst of the film. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go quick here because I don't want to waste too much time. Yeah, on no, that's mention, why I, I agree. I'll yeah. mention the like couple ones that I just hated. Um, sure. I hated this film. Uh, what's it called? Uh, the Cathedral, which was the holdover from Venice. I, I don't know why I watched it. It was in the next category. Blech. <laughs> like really experimental junk. I I didn't like Duel as we already talked about. Um, I did not like this uh, film from Montreal called Babysitter. Mm. Again, way too experimental. Um, and then my probably my least favorite or one of my most hated was this You Won't Be Alone film with Numi Rapace, this witch movie, also experimental concept of like following this witch as it transfers to different people, and it was just miserable. <laughs> couldn't stand it and I, a lot of these films i'm like generally i'm trying to be like oh okay there's something interesting here but a few of these i'm just like oh my gosh this is this is painful to watch and of course you're always going to run into a few of these at the festival what did you hate <laughs> uh there's only one that i like really disliked but i will note, and this is not it but i will note that the the i guess it was like the opening night film or like the premiere one of the premiere films but when you finish saving the world jesse eisenberg's directorial debut yeah yeah i didn't hate it but it felt like it felt like the the Sundance Sundance movie, like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's exactly. like the what what you like would stereotype a Sundance movie as. That's what this one felt like, where it's this like acerbic perform acerbic personalities 
with like awkward comedy going on. You have Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard is like a mother and son. And it's like, it, it feels like it's like Noah Baumbach, but not great. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. I get where Eisenberg is coming Put from. Put that on that. the DVD. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like, eh, this is nothing. Um, the one that I, this one again, I didn't hate, but it was more like, there's a great premise here and you don't know how to do it. Uh, Alice, <laughs> Uh, with Kim Palmer, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. where she plays a woman that has been raised as a slave in Georgia, only to discover that she's actually been living in 1972 the entire time. And it's like the movie wants to incorporate like black exploitation elements as well as drama and kind of a, a, call, a social call to justice of sorts, and just doesn't know how to blend these things together, uh, which was a shame because it's like, well, I like the idea of this, but boy, the execution just did not land. Uh, the yeah, film I least liked uh, was Watcher. Uh, this one with Michael Monroe. Uh... Uh, it's kind of this Hitchcock, Polanski, Euro thriller type thing where she moves into an apartment with her boyfriend or fiance, um, only to realize that there's someone at the on the like opposing side of the street that's watching her, or she thinks is watching her. And there's like style here that I think comes by default just because it filmed in Romania, so it's like it, any shot's going to look interesting. But there's just there's it's really dull and i, I like <laughs> yeah it's yeah. a really dull film i the slow burn was had no real payoff because both it was yeah, obvious yeah. as well as it lacked any sort of energy by the time he got to the end of this thing and i just i just wasn't into it, it just felt like a story i've seen way too many times done all kinds exactly. of different ways some of which are much much better some of which are just like this which is bad so it's like no this one just did not do anything for me yeah, I I'm I'm glad you say that because it got so many people were raving about it, and I remember I watched it before the festival. And I remember thinking to myself the same thing after these raves came out. I'm like, this is it's the same thing we've seen. It's like there's yeah. nothing new to it. Yeah, this came out in like I, 1993, maybe sure. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> like and it's not that it, like you said it's it's really well shot. So like I think that's why a lot of people are liking it. But I just it just doesn't amount to anything. And by the end, I was I really hated the ending. I don't want to give it away, but like yeah. what happens? I was like, really? Come on! Like this is where you're gonna end with? I don't know. I just yeah, yeah, I agree. So yeah, um, all right. Let's talk about some of the. There, there were some that like got a lot of attention. Obviously, uh, let's talk about this one. Cha Cha Real Smooth, um, mm. which won I believe it won the audience award. Um, and yeah, it, it yeah. certainly plays like a film that would win the audience award at Sundance. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it does have this kind of appealing aspect to it that makes a lot of sense. You have uh, Cooper Wraith, the writer and director who stars in this film. He previously made Shithouse. Um, was it just last year, a couple years ago? It was like uh, two years ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is his follow-up film where he plays a guy who's getting out of college, doesn't know what he wants to do, um, uh, and finds, him, finds that he has a talent for gathering people together at like bar mitzvahs and like young kids celebration ceremonies and so he decides okay i'll take it i'll do that i'll be the party host for bar mitzvahs um during this time uh he strikes up a a, a bond with a, a mother of an autistic daughter uh, the mother is played by dakota johnson uh, the daughter is uh, vanessa berghart played Malola, uh, who i believe is an actual autistic Actor, it'd be weird if it wasn't these days, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it'd be weird to do that. I, I never, I never know, and I'm like, I just hope they got it right. It's like, like I, I, especially in 2022, it'd be really weird to not cast that. Although we did have what music just last year, or whatever. So um, yeah, but the, but but uh, not to, to tangent recently, uh, briefly, is that in Sharp Stick, the the um, Lena Dunham one, there's also an autistic character in it, and I think 
You have to read the news about it. I don't know whether okay. it is or isn't, but all right. Well, in this movie, Cha Cha Real Smooth. Um, uh, for the most part, I I enjoyed this movie. I think it's very it's designed to be enjoyable. I think it works as enjoyable. I think the actors do their job. Uh, being Jewish, uh, a movie that centered on uh, various bar mitzvah parties was very appealing to me already. <laughs> so I was like, this is interesting. I haven't seen this kind of thing <laughs> before. Um, and even the title itself, I liked how it incorporated itself into the film. But Alex, what would you think of Cha Cha Real Smooth? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm gonna pull an errand with this. It's fine. It's it's like, I my first thought was this is Cooper Rice's 500 Days of Summer. He's basically just doing the same thing of oh he falls for a woman who rejects him by the end and blah blah blah. And I think the the other thing I wanted to say about the end, especially because all these people were losing their mind over it, like so many critics, it's their number one. And I was thinking like this is the ultimate film for um. Uh, Dakota Johnson. It's like the ultimate, you think you're going to hook up with Dakota Johnson and you dream of it and you fantasize about it, but guess what? That's never going to happen. Like, it's like, it's like the epitome of that story. Like, too bad you're not going to, because it's, it, I wouldn't even say Dakota Johnson's playing anyone. I felt like she was just playing herself the whole time. And it was this ultimate, like, oh, guess what? You're not going to get with her. Nice try, guys. And it's like, if you ever, if you ever have a friend who's like, oh, I'm in love with Dakota Johnson, just be like, watch this film, learn your lesson, and then go home. Because <laughs> it's, I think that's what I thought was so fine about it. Is I'm like, by the end, it's just like, okay, what did, what did, what, what's really special about this? Uh, some nice relationships, and that's about it. I, I found it so weird. I, I, Someone... I'll just say I agree with you as far as what it's trying to do with the kind of adult relationship aspect of this film. It's like that means little to me. I think what I admired most about this film was, was how. Cooper Raid's character, how he, how Andrew, how he connects with the with the kids, basically with the with both yeah, his like younger yeah. brother, with the with the with Lola, and just his life as this bar mitzvah party host, which he's terrible at, by the way. Like I I like that yeah. he it's this like false ego that he gets because he did a good job once, where it's like I could do a whole business off of this. I like that the film make sure to realize like no you're terrible at this job like you got you might have gotten lucky but you are a terrible like this is you're a terrible employee <laughs> like this would be a horrible thing for you to do do a business for he's very cooper's films are very like he he's all about making like pointing out his own flaws and kind of yeah. criticizing himself which is fine again fine <laughs> but never really it doesn't win me over i'm always curious why so many critics love it like it doesn't were you not as big it on, doesn't do anything we're not big on shithouse either no, I felt the same kind of way. I was like, eh, it's fine. Don't know. I, I thought this is a, a great moment. I have to read this tweet about it because um, this film critic, this uh, female film critic, wrote this tweet. She deleted it afterwards, even though I thought it was the most accurate uh, summation of Cha Cha Real Smooth. She says, and I saved this because it's such a great tweet. A coming of age where the guy doesn't have problems. Instead, he helps a hot woman who does and who inexplic inexplicably fancies him where he doesn't receive sage advice from older people, but doles it out to each character in turn, regardless of their age or experience. Incredible scenes. I was like, she nailed it. Why did she delete this tweet? It was so good. But it's, I get it. It's just like, like with me, it's just, it doesn't win me over. It doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. And I, but I can't say it's bad. I, I don't know. Fair enough. I don't, yeah. I mean, I feel like I agree with you. Like, I mean, it, like I yeah, think the movie's yeah. enjoyable, but like, empty let's talk about one of the other movies here uh nanny um this is i believe a one like they win the grand jury prize yeah it did it did yeah crazy you know was uh, completely unexpected uh this is from uh writer director uh, uh nikiatu jusu 
the film stars uh, ended up as Aisha, an immigrant from Senegal, who is living in New York. She gets a job as a nanny for an upper state family, like a, a, a fairly well-off family. Uh, the, the mother played by uh, Michelle Monaghan, um, working for she's a nanny who's a young child in this like fancy condo apartment thing. Uh, Aisha's trying to earn money so she can bring her child from Senegal over to America. As she has this job, she starts to have these kind of nightmares and various, like, it takes this kind of supernatural vibe as far as, like, her trying to both live her life as playing this, portraying this nanny character person, but also dealing with whatever, like, ex existential stress that she might have that seems to be manifesting itself as some kind of evil. Um, I will say this like this movie is like an hour and 90 or a nine, uh, 35 minutes something like that i really liked like 90 minutes of this movie and then it seemed <laughs> to have like the most rushed finale i can recall in some time as far as like where things go once like we find out a key piece of information it just like sprints to the finish line and it was really not satisfying to the extent of like this was ready to be like one of my favorite movies of the festival and then it was just like oh no never, it just kind of dropped completely um mm. uh, not not to the extent of not liking it anymore like i still think movies good enough but it's like wow i thought there was something really well done here and you mentioned master in relation to this movie earlier there's this kind of approach to linking the kind of supernatural aspects and just like the vibe of the thing with with kind of like daily senses of racism, uh, not that like the family's necessarily rich, but there's certainly like a there's a tone going on with how people talk to Aisha versus you know others and whatnot that was condescending, and it's clear. But the like, I I was really interested in like all of those angles, and then again it just kind of stops, <laughs> like it, it yeah. gives you like a bunch of stuff and then stops. I was like okay. All right, that was the movie then. But Alex, what what do you think of Nanny? No, I I don't I'm I wasn't really into this much and I really? I think it's yeah, I think it's for these same kind of reasons you're talking about like it just didn't I don't know, I, I, at this point in the festival I'd seen so many other films that it just didn't impress me in any way or another. Uh-huh. And my reference to Master is that I actually felt the opposite of Master. Master I thought the the horror stuff and I know you're you were the opposite as me, but in Master, I thought the horror elements that came from from racism and what they were dealing with were really well done and really creative. In Nanny, I thought they were like so cliche and obvious, like typical, oh, she looks at the corner of her room and it gets dark and filled with mold. And I was like, this is just a cliche horror thing. Like I didn't feel like the horror really meant anything. I didn't feel like it actually had impact the way it should have. And it, um, I don't know, it just didn't really strike me much. I, I would say it's in the realm of good, not great, but I don't know why it ended up winning. It's just it's strange to me. I don't know. I you know I don't I haven't seen nearly as many films as you, so I don't really I don't know. No, but uh, but, but I, you've seen it, so you like you you know the film. I, I guess my question is like, how did the jury watch this and think out of everything else they saw, this is the the winner? Like I no, I agree. Yeah, I agree with you to that extent. I. I'm saying I don't, I don't know like if there was outside the films that I have seen and many of which I think are quite good like I don't know if there's some other thing there that could really nail this either but regardless for this film specifically I I guess it's just the filmmaking because I because for me I do mm. I do think it was rather like I think the supernatural stuff that it includes 
I think is far it's far more effective for me than Master was uh, from mm. just from like a visual and presentation standpoint. I, I felt like I was more tense watching this movie when it dealt with that aspect of it. I think that like there's mm. there's uses of color and visual choices and like a recurring theme involving water, just stuff that I, I really liked as far as how it was handling those things. And I can I can see what you're saying as far as it's a cliche to a point to use certain things like bold like obvious forms of symbolism, but at that time when I was watching, I was like sure i've seen stuff like this but i want to know where this is going and so as i was right. watching the movie, it was like i'm just counting on the idea that there's going to be a really solid climax that you know explains certain things or gives me an understanding and it doesn't do that <laughs> so it's like well yeah. that's that that was disappointing to me it's like oh okay like <laughs> and that's it <laughs> it's like oh yeah. so it's it was more of a letdown based on i gave it a lot of you know credit for what it was doing in the moment but it didn't end up building to something that I appreciated anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think this this always goes back to something that, as critics, when we watch you know hundreds of movies every year, the one of the the most clear things that happens with every single movie is it's really hard to nail your third act. Yeah, there's there's always like I've noticed it so much in the last decade is it's like you may have the first half really great, but that ending. It's just either it's just poorly written, it has nothing to say, it goes nowhere, or they just don't stick the landing at all, or I don't know what it is. It seems, it seems to be pretty common amongst oh, yeah. a lot of films these days. Of the, of the films that I've, especially for the, since I've just watched, you know, all of these, all the films that I've seen, for the most, almost all of them, the, you know, it just goes like, oh, okay, then it ended. <laughs> that's yeah. it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's how, that's we're done. <laughs> it's like okay, I, I hope that the Sundance, um, the, the, what the the. What do they have there? The uh, the workshop. I hope that uh, helps out in, in uh, the future. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, any other films you want to shout out before we? I know we've been going for a while here. You want to shout out any other films before we wrap up? Um, before I talk about the remaining ones that I've seen, no, the only other one I really want to mention. Uh, I love Brian and Charles, by the way. It's a sci-fi robot one. Did you see it? No, I did not. No. Okay, that's one of them. Like, I hope people catch up to at some point, and I'll talk about it more in you know in the future. But the other one I really want to mention is this uh, film called A Love Song. Um, oh, with um, um, what's her name? Um, yeah, Dale Dickey. Dale Dickey. <laughs> yes, Dale yes. Dickey and, we- and uh, Wes Studi playing just yes. a guy, <laughs> like not not a Native <laughs> American man, just a guy. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's really sweet. Did you see it? Yes, I did. It is. It's a it's a really nice movie. Yeah, I, I, I really um, – I was, like, ready to be bored by it because I was like, ah, oh, just a you know, woman waiting for love. It's a cool concept. It's like she's she's this older woman and she's, like, has her camp uh, – her little camper in her truck, like, parked by this lake waiting for a guy, uh, you know, getting old, hoping that this guy shows up. And, you know, he shows up, but that's not really the, the main part of it, and they have this little moment. But um, what really won me over, because I, I thought, okay, that's this pretty bland, is the way that it has this like Wes and early Wes Anderson style quirkiness to it. Sure. Yeah. Where like the 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 um the girl with the cowboy hat that always shows up, and like the the, the framing and these like goofy little humorous moments to it. I felt like that added something to it that made it a little bit more than just the story about love. But at the end of the day, I was like, this is a really sweet story about uh not only love but about like love at an old age and you know what what does it mean to like be lonely and long for someone and like how how brutal loneliness is like one of the strongest movies i've ever seen about how like overwhelming loneliness is um but but in a way that is really sweet and and moving 
Yeah, I want people to. Yeah, I just want people to see it. Yeah, it's a nice like. If you watch like Nomadland, you're like, I need something a little lighter, but in the same vein. This works. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) actually, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well said. Anything else? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I could talk about all the only other ones I want to want to mention, not talk about, because I could go on and on. Or just a lot of the documentaries that I was you know, moved by. Sundance is really probably one of the best festivals for documentaries. Um, they're, they're just like, they, I don't know why other festivals like can doesn't program any documentaries. They program like two or three of them, the whole festival. So, so Sundance is just better at choosing and finding and then just featuring really excellent documentaries from all over the world. So other than the ones I'd mentioned, fire love, I loved ridesville USA. I loved, um, second chance. We already talked about, uh, another one that was really, really wonderful is All the Breeze, which is about these um, birds in mm-hmm. India. I heard about that which, one, yeah. Yeah, it's, it sounds weird, but it's really, really gorgeous film. Um, uh, in addition to that, um, I was intrigued by the TikTok boom one, which is about TikTok. I thought it was more than what I was expecting. Um, the Navalny film, which won a bunch of awards, is good, although it's not great. Um, I mean, there's just nothing compares, um, just about Sinead O'Connor is, is an excellent breakdown of her, her controversy. Um, La Guerra Civil is a really cool story about, uh, this big fight between two Mexican boxers, um, made by Eva Longoria. Uh, and, um, I think what else was really won me over. Oh, this this film called Free Cholsu Lee, uh, which was this kind of interesting documentary about this Korean guy in I think in Chinatown, San Francisco, who was wrongfully arrested and imprisoned. He was just like not even near the scene, just got accused of shooting a guy, thrown into prison. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of this guy's story. And the learned that there was a whole movement about him. There was a whole Free Cholsu Lee movement where a bunch of people gathered and protested and, and helped him get out of prison. Um, and a really cool story about redemption and just what, you know, the, another one of these, not that it's not typical, but another one of these stories about um, wrongful imprisonment in America and, and how often it happens. And yeah, I mean, I could talk about everything forever, but <laughs> those are probably the ones I really want to highlight most of all. Actually, I do have one other one if I'm allowed to talk about it. <laughs> you got one more. <laughs> it's, it's, my, it's my secret uh, reveal for anyone who gets to this far in the podcast because I'm probably not <laughs> supposed to talk about it. I saw this. Uh, they pulled this film from the festival when they announced that the festival wouldn't be in person anymore. I saw the French remake uh, of One Cut of the Dead called oh, Final Cut. Yeah. Okay. I happened to get a screener in December, and I watched it in December, and I reveal it exclusively on the show because I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it anywhere else. Wonderful. Uh, I loved it. I, I like, loved it. loved it. And I would say it's, again, the rare remake that is almost as good as, if not as good as, the original, the Japanese version. And everyone loves the Japanese version, One Cut of the Dead. And this is um, Michelle Hazanavicious. Uh, it's a Hazanavicious film? <laughs> Yes, I did not know that at all. <laughs> it's 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 um it's another clearly it's a pandemic film like they just went to some abandoned thing with like eight eight people and his wife plays one of the characters and they just shot it and uh it's great. It's really yeah, 
I I'm sad they pulled it from the fest, but I completely understand it. It's um I'm sad I didn't see it with an audience, but I understand why watching with an audience is the right way to see it. And his wife, you said would... his wife is in the his wife being Berenice Vejo, who's like yeah yeah who's in the artist and other things. Yeah okay. Yeah, I mean clearly they worked with the Japanese. Uh, I mean actually the 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 it's so it's because you know the original film is a, a very meta film about itself and about filmmaking yeah. this one is so meta that it's about them remaking the japanese version oh my god this sounds great and it's yeah and it's like <laughs> on top of that then it's like they do the same thing as then again and then but with french sensibilities and it's it's hilarious and there's a uh, yeah you'll see you'll see whenever it shows up sometime later in the year um but i i can reveal that i really loved it and i'm sad it got pulled well, I, I'm very much looking forward to it. I, I really did. I did not realize Michelle has on a vicious the movie, either, yeah, which is really yeah. it makes it more intriguing to me. But okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You remember when he won an Oscar and then like went away and didn't do anything else of imports um, since then? No, he did. He did the Godard film. But, yeah. like, you don't even know what I'm talking about. No, no I do. It's just like yeah, that Godard film that we all talk about. Right. right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, like, no, but everyone, everyone no, hated I, that he won the Oscar anyway, so I don't. I had no issue. It's just more of the amount of impact that that had for him, as well as um, as uh, as um, what's his face, Jean um, Dujardin. Jean Dujardin. It's like yeah, these yeah. guys just kind of like swept the Oscars and went away. <laughs> like, it's really kind of funny <laughs> that they did that. But uh, I appreciate that he did that instead of the typical thing, which is like they win and then they take any money from anywhere and they make some like mediocre. Yeah, movie no, I, I, that, I'm also happy that that didn't happen. It's, it's just funny yeah. that this like you know, by comparison to other Oscar winners, yeah, he just kind of like, yeah, all right, we did it, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> we'll do our own. But you'll see. But I, I think Final Cut is a good return for him. Like it'll it'll bring him back in a way that reminds you, like, oh, this guy's actually got some talent as a filmmaker and. He's really good at making fun films. I think that's his his knack. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, I am looking forward to that one. But cool, I'm 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 glad that we were able to get that exclusive information here on Out Now. Well, I mean, I was like, I was, I almost was gonna tweet about it because, I, of course, I had seen it. and I want to say something, but I'm like, technically, I'm probably not allowed to because mm-hmm. they pulled it. But I had something like, okay, I'll drop it on the podcast. Well, and... Bad boy, Alex <laughs> Billington. Once again, he was able to resist the urge to tweet something. Even on the edge. That um, was real hard, man. It couldn't, you know. I assume that you've written about many of these films that you've seen. Yeah, I write a lot on Letterboxd more than on my site. But... Okay. Well, I'll I'll just say that that is going to do it for this week's episode, but I do want to make sure that we get the plugs in so we can find out where we can find more thoughts on some of these features. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, you can find more of my work on my personal blog at cozy.com. Everything I do ends up over there. But I do have a couple of uh, Sundance highlights posts as well as my full review for Something in the Dirt over at weaveofentertainment.com. I'm also on Twitter, Aaron's PS4. Alex, what do you want to plug here? Uh, yeah, firstshowing.net and on Twitter, firstshowing and Letterboxd, firstshowing. Great. And yeah, you can find plenty of Alex's thoughts on the Sundance uh, Film Festival through those means. Um, you can find more episodes of this show on iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify, Stitcher. You can email us at outnowpodcast.gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There's some variation of Outnow Podcast or Outnow underscore podcast. Uh, Alex, thank you very much for joining us for this extended Sundance recap episode. No, thank you for having me. Always happy to be here. For sure. Glad to do this. I hope we get you on more than just this time of year, uh, sometime later in the year. <laughs> me too, me too. But uh, thanks again. And that, let's see, next week we next week we got a great double feature coming. It's Moonfall and Jackass Forever. Uh, that should be fun <laughs> to go over both of those films. Awesome. But uh, that is going to be it for this week's episode. So until next time, so long and goodbye. Goodbye.